Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do various things of great consequence and significance that are completely indispensable at a place called Freethink. The truth is, it's it's rather hard to explain, but I'm delighted to be here. You could mention a product once in a while, like, we just did this thing. Also, you should just say at Freethink, because you say at a place called Freethink, it's like no one's ever heard of it. It's like, it's this kind of fly-by-night operation. I mean, in some contexts, people haven't heard of it, so it's fine. Yeah, well, like, if, you, uh, if you start acting like people have heard of it, then maybe they'll have heard of it. There I just don't want to confuse them. All right, who cares? You know what I mean? <laughs> a place called Freethink. I want to be, be very explicit, but I uh, thank right. you. The, the gentleman being helpful to me this evening, um, as with most evenings, they're generally trying to be helpful to me and not tearing me down and not making yeah. me feel self-conscious. Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. In it's the a building. weird pen you got on there. I always have a compliment I know, but pens. like the rid what, or riot. riot. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, it's a yeah. command. Just trying to Michael Moynihan, hey. Vice News there you in go. the building as well. Gentlemen, great to see the both of you. What up? And of course, our very good friend, Anthony Fisher, also in the building. Insider. Mm-hmm. I don't remember your new title. That's okay. Whatever. We'll get there. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. You keep switching it up on me. You <laughs> know, I have challenges operating with operating officer. Once a year. Yeah, so, CEO. Yeah. He's the CEO. <laughs> Business Insider. Yeah, yeah. Now known as Insider. Yeah. Um, He's the one who made that transition. Thanks for making some time for us. Yeah, for sure. Happy to be here. Traffic has gone off a demanding. <laughs> I saw you, um, dickheads, uh, a couple nights ago. Yeah. Huh. And we uh, recorded, uh, it was like a Bruce Springsteen concert. Jesus it Christ. It just wasn't ending. It was a real, and, and so we did a special edition for the Patreon subscribers, uh, which is a good one. This is It was uh, about his. Um, evergreen as it gets because mm. there was not a lot of uh, on the day political content but you mm-hmm. know we figure around the time of Christmas everyone's going to be in different places we have some stuff for you guys and here's my question do we cut it in two because it was long it was it it's was like really it was like the sorrow and the pity it was 15, really yeah. it was a very long we, it was we kind of a prince after show we exactly. frequently go for about two hours and but we this don't is, cut those but this was 2.15 it's fine yeah, but then we can cut it because it's not it's not one contiguous. The kids block. listen to Rogan. They listen to hardcore history. When I do my hardcore yeah. history, I, I clear out my day. I, I schedule a bunch of cleaning that I need to do. And I listen to f- a five hour mainlining podcast. the Adderall. Really? Totally. Listening to it. Three. Absolutely. I say, don't talk to me. Really? That's what I said. Did you guys daughter. see the, the but, get away it, from man, me? You sound like I turn her Shut for a up. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the person who's who listened to uh, our last episode and said, this is the uh, this is the first time I've actually listened to it on regular speed. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys get drunk. <laughs> we weren't even that bad. Um, uh, wait, I was about. Oh, that's right. People listen to it like double speed. <laughs> yeah. So, like, we sound like, totally normal. Oh, uh, but, but I want to introduce our guests. Uh, yeah. Connor Friedersdorf is oh, in is the that room that is? of the Atlantic. Yeah. It's over there. <laughs> it's a pleasure <laughs> to have you here. Celebrated commentator. Celebrated. He's one of America's greatest wordsmiths. He's great. Yeah. I and just said it. Connor. I will say, and I, I presume we'll get to this. You get a lot of you get a lot of uh, shit from people sometimes too. Yeah, a little also bit. a lot of love. A little bit, a lot of love. I would say yeah. that it's more love than 
opprobrium, but he said, there's, some, there's little uh, anger to it. I hear there's a podcast of socialists that doesn't like me very much. <laughs> I haven't I listened that, to it, that, but it's, I, it's yeah. the rumor is that, that right? I've heard, yes. They're, they're not fans of yours? No, I think. Is this a, the, the trap house of Chapos? Yes, yes. Yeah. I hear. I, I have not listened to them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a fifth you're column not, listener. You're not missing much, right? But, uh, Whoa, there it is. Shots fired. I love that. Uh, Thank I, you. Do they call you a neoliberal, or what's your what's the go-to insult for Connor Peterstorff? I don't really know what they call me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm curious, actually. Is it a neoliberal, a Coke shill? Um, hmm. I can imagine different things, but I'm not sure. Have they never reached out to talk to you? No. Well, they might. They might like you now because you did bring us a bottle of Venezuelan <laughs> rum. Right. <laughs> yes. They'd be like, ah, oh, you're breezing. Yes. Breaking the sanctions, guys. Yes, I've inadvertently broken the sanctions. Yeah. Look, and this so is, let's this let's consider you know. it a peace gesture to yeah, the, that's the Chapo trap house people. That's so kind. Yeah. If not for the sanctions, Venezuela would be a thriving, opulent society with absolutely no problems and zero crime. No. Yeah, paradise on a, earth. It's a product yeah. of Venezuela. I mean, I did think it was weird that the price changed like three times. <laughs> I should have known that. Yeah, I should have known that. You brought a wheelbarrow full of cash. Oh, hyperinflation is so sad. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, we got Connor here. That's great. Yeah, um, I didn't know that that's who that was. Yeah, I just walked in. I was like some dude we here. We don't usually inform Moynihan of anything. No, you know, no, no, just kind of show up. Well, before you didn't, so it's great what? that you Whoa! do that. When? When? Boom! Shots fired. When? I'm just saying there was a point. Where, uh, it was you know, a tough period in my life for yeah, a little bit, and you know, that's the, if, we're just glad you're again. Over if you uh, subscribe to the Patreon, I'll be doing a <laughs> one man show just for you about the troubles that uh, befell me in the past. Uh, mm, I th- uh, actually, yeah, we got into some deep stuff last time. Uh, oh yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. That was, heavy. was uh, unexpected. Went heavy, mm-hmm. and then afterwards, I was like, "Does that? Did, did I screw that up?" Yeah. And Matt, Matt said, "Yes, you did." Uh, <laughs> no, you said I didn't, and and uh, I went and listened to it immediately after to make sure I didn't. But if you subscribe, you'll hear what we're talking about. But um, yeah, I was a little nervous about that. So, um, but you should subscribe, and uh, we are. We usually talk about this at the end of the podcast, which is like bad business, strange, in almost every way. So we uh, do have a Patreon, and uh, you'll know how these things operate, with a tier system, mm-hmm. and then depending on what tier you're in, you see how this works, you get more and better better stuff. And by the way, this is an important point. I get an email, I think, you, maybe, I don't know if we got this on uh, on the Patreon um, sort of uh, message thing, or if, to the We The Fifth address. It is patreon.com slash We The Fifth. Somebody told me that they uh, uh, pledged uh, cash to uh, the fifth column p- Patreon, which is one, I think it's the fifth column, and it has nothing to do with us. Nothing. And they're, no, um, they're some sort of fake media company that has never <laughs> produced anything and is just squatting on various things that, that, that should be ours. But, uh, but yeah, make sure you don't do that. And uh, I should email those guys and be like, how much money are you making from us? Because I think they're making a little something. A little mm. something's going on there. Hmm. Because that, yeah, there's somebody made a mistake, so don't make that mistake. And then there's a lot of content for you there, and we've got a bunch of uh, content coming up, including uh, a couple of uh, lost episodes <laughs> with Camille Foster mm-hmm. and uh, DeRay McKesson, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the vest-wearing uh, Black Lives Matter activist. Um, who I believe you said some nice things about in the podcast we did the other day. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Heather McDonald, I think, mm-hmm. and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I really want to point out, before we get to the actual, a listener created, and I, I, I like this. <laughs> this is the listener-generated content. A listener created uh, for us um, a sort of greatest hits, super cut, uh, gatefold, double record of uh, uh, rants. 
of uh, fifth column rants. I don't know. It's like over an hour, isn't it? It's an hour and a half. Fuck. And it's <laughs> only, this is only through episode 50. So it's, man, this is an angry first 50, wasn't it? This is some really good stuff. Most of it is joyous and wonderful. Okay. Yeah, it was is like being trapped in a, in a wonderful time machine. I mean, it's all a little embarrassing, but it's spectacular as well. Was that when, uh, uh, what was Matt predicting at the time? <laughs> Super embarrassing. I don't know if there are any predictions in there. You can listen to that thing in isolation yeah. and not know what period of time we're talking about necessarily. Really? It's really good. Yeah. But apparently, I haven't listened to it yet, but yeah, apparently wonder, you did, It's wonderful. It, it stands Matt. up and a lot, a lot of, of it is Matt. Yeah. yeah. Matt okay. is a standout superstar. So if you hate Matt Welch. Don't listen to it. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I do. But, but if you hate Matt, well, stop listening to this podcast. You can hate like edit and send it to your that. enemies. When, when you described it as an album, I thought it was a supercut of all Camille singing. Yeah, well. Oh. That's, that's a request. Well, wow. That, is that I'm something not... you would be interested in, Connor? <laughs> well, I'm holding out for the, the Patreon karaoke outing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know when that level will be introduced, but that's yeah. when I'm we signing up personally. It won't be It won't be karaoke. I'm going to have a full band. I just want you to do the Camille Foster Orchestra. God, it's going to be amazing. The spoken word band. Toward, toward the end of the song, like baby, yeah, that's, that's all. I want. I'm oh just a man! Kind of that. Anyway, yeah, th- th- there's there's a suggestion that we do a Camille singing, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of uh, yeah. different things. But yeah. we do like the user generated content, provided you're not cutting it together to make us look bad. Yeah, because <laughs> we will uh, uh, compare this with the, the original recording. Yeah, no deep fakes. We should probably get into it. There's plenty of stuff going on. I think tomorrow, we're recording this on a Tuesday evening. This is the night before the Democrats in the House are slated to vote on the impeachment, uh, unless they've delayed it for some reason, uh, which I suspect they probably won't. We should probably devote a little bit of attention to that. I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but we haven't talked about it with Connor, who's written about it recently and, and may have some interesting th- things to say about that. But there's also plenty of other stuff going on and plenty of other things that you, Connor, have been writing about recently and thinking about that I think are of interest to us. Um, but perhaps we begin with this really outrageous uh, shooting that took place in Jersey City. Not that most murder scenes aren't outrageous in some way, shape or form, but it is not every day that a neighboring city to New York City uh, finds itself in the midst of a shootout between assailants and police officers where hundreds of rounds are fired in the city in broad daylight, and it it sounds like a war zone if you've actually listened to the audio um, and seen the video of bystanders out there, police officers going in and in a line uh, to try and disentangle this situation. Um, And what's what's curious about the situation is the degree to which um, the story really hasn't received the sort of coverage that you might expect in other circumstances. Um, And it's almost certainly true that a lot of mass shootings um, probably end up getting more coverage than you might expect relative to the risks associated with this thing happening. But I think it's noteworthy when certain shootings seem to inspire a lot of conversation and other shootings seem to not inspire a lot of conversation. And in this particular case, to remind folks, because again, it's just only received so much coverage, um, it was a man and woman who had been in some sort of long-term relationship. A lot of the details are still uh, coming out as the investigation is being completed. Uh, both of them seem to be affiliated with sort of black nationalists. Uh, as the, the narrative has sort of laid out, they killed an Uber driver or some sort of uh, taxi driver um, early in the morning. There was a police officer who was killed who apparently approached a, a moving truck that they'd been living out of during the day. Um, And later on in the day, 
they approached a convenience store that was owned and operated by, uh, it seems, some Jewish people in the community. And by the end of the day, they killed, I believe it's four or five people wounded, um, one of them being a police officer, wounded several other police officers. Uh, and again, we're responsible for inciting this incredible scene. Um, but there's a lot of like peculiar stuff that seems like it's worth talking about. Mm. And I think the context here being that this isn't the first time that someone who has had some sort of relationship with black nationalist stuff has been responsible for a mass shooting in the last like five or six years. Like we've seen several of them, actually. And it's not as though there aren't some prominent black nationalist leaders who have pretty substantial followings. Some black nationalist leaders can get 10, 15,000 people into a stadium. And black nationalist leaders also enjoy a lot of support, I should say. At least uh, they uh, seem to get a lot of respect from prominent black celebrities. There are interesting dynamics here that might be worth talking about. The specter of anti-Semitism, some rather disturbing video um, of people who were at the scene of the shooting, essentially watching what had happened in some cases, but also just being there hours after everything had sort of calmed down and saying explicitly anti-Semitic things at the scene of the crime. Uh, one guy I remember, it was just like this rather disturbing moment where he walks up to someone who's holding a camera uh, presumably thinking that he's Jewish and saying something along the lines of, are those your people in there that got killed? Well, that's good. Um, which is just, like it says it I don't twice, even know yeah. what to do with yeah. that. Um, yeah. But at any rate, it seems like the sort of thing that might spark a national conversation. And instead, I've seen some coverage of it, uh, but I haven't seen this sort of deep, introspective, soul-searching coverage associated with this. And that's, that's the difference, right? I mean, it's not to say that there hasn't been coverage. Of course, there has been coverage. And the reason we know about it is because there's been coverage. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, the video that was out there, that it, um, good God, I mean, it was, it, it was like Raqqa. I mean, this was not a gun battle that you see between cops. You know, somebody's emptying a magazine and then reloading their magazine. I mean, this is just like... It sounds like a war zone. It sounds pretty brutal. And, you know, the thing about it is that, you know, these people were attacked. The second it was, it, it said it was a kosher store. I hate to be right about these things, but you recall that I predicted this. That's and true. I, 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 I was and very specific. I we said, these are, these are great. I guarantee that they're going to be black Hebrew Israelites. Um, cause they're a violent, very violent group. To be um, fair, every time you see a violent crime, you send me a text that says, Hey, I bet it's a black guy. That's not true. It's always them. Yeah, those people. The opposite is that I'm like, well, you always blaming everyone. <laughs> no, <laughs> the black I'm kidding. The Israelites were part of the whole Covington teenagers. Uh, yes. 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 An event that got a lot more coverage yes. than national soul searching than this. That, that, yeah, that did get some soul searching with a, uh, 16 year old kid or something involved. But so the, the, the thing that I I find very curious about this is that these are people targeted specifically because they're Jewish, um, killed because they're Jewish, targeted, you know. Um, we see people, as Camille's uh, discussing in video, I, it's been tweeted a number of times um, of people afterwards 
saying some pretty hideous things. And, you know, it's an edited video, but when people say it's an edited video, it's like, there's certain things that like, there's really no other context for that. Uh Is that like, I don't, you're not quoting anyone. And also because, you know, video, you have to edit it, right? Mm -hmm. If you're out there for 10 hours and, you know, people say there's really anti-Semitic things, like you're not going to play the whole 10 hours. It's not. So I've seen this like, oh, it's been, it's been edited. So be careful. Like, yeah, sure. Be careful. But it, it was pretty angry stuff blaming the victims uh, and it was explicitly anti-Semitic in doing so. And, you know, thinking about this and the, the lack of a so-called national conversation about this or any, it appears to be any real conversation about the, the motives here, is that this is also a group that is targeted more regularly than anybody else. Particularly, in, there we have something approaching what would be, you know, a big problem. I'm saying it's an epidemic, but a big problem here in New York City, mm-hmm. and you know, particularly in my neighborhood, which is you know, a Hasidic neighborhood. People being hit, uh, beaten up, often um, this guy hit with a brick uh, the other day, and it's usually with with some uh, uh, anti-Semitic slurs that go along with it. There's a lot of this stuff out there. So what was surprising to me was that there's no conversation at all about, for instance, this video, is that if you have someone who's motivated by racial hatred and they go up shooting something up in, in such a dramatic fashion with, with an arsenal as if they were, you know, I think it would have gotten a lot more attention if they were killing Jews and they were dressed up in a, you know, an SS uniform. That would have changed the calculation. It doesn't change the calculation for the people whose, whose relatives died. They died, right? But it's, it's for some reason, and I think we probably guess the reason, but also, by the way, just to backpack slightly, the other, there's another shooting that happened right before that's getting no attention. It was a Saudi national that that's right. shot up and, 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 who also was anti-Semitic and was posting uh, not just anti-Israel things, but anti-Semitic stuff and um, like extremist stuff online. And that happened like a, what, a week and a half before. So we've actually had two anti-Semitic mass shootings and they're not, it's not, we're not sitting here going, oh, this is a crisis. I do believe that we have uh, for, for, for a long time overlooked the emergence of white nationalist terrorism. And we've seen a, 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 a disturbing amount of it recently. And that should be paid attention to. And so people who say, well, that, you know, if DHS is looking into these things, they're looking into these things because they just don't like conservatives, whatever. And that's not, that's nonsense, right? And there are, we, we should be looking into this stuff and, and more than we have in the past because there's a lot of it out there. Cool. But, I, you know, right now is that, you know, one would assume that two anti-Semitic shootings in a row is a bit of a problem. But here's the problem. Here's the thing that I found amazing, and Camille and I were communicating about this today. He said there's a video um, out there of people saying these things um, after, after the shooting. I can't find it. So I went and found it, right? And in the process of finding it, I found uh, one, article, one article about it, which was uh, on NorthJersey.com. And I don't know if this is the Bergen record or something, or it's just NorthJersey.com. But I'm going to read you some selections. There's no quotes. This is about that video. There are no quotes in the piece uh, from the video. None. These people saying these Jews are this, they're taking over, they're interlopers. It's usually, it's always the same narrative, right? Remember the whole thing in the 80s and 90s of calling Jews interlopers. They're coming to our community, et cetera. I'm just going to read you a few um, selections from this. And this is not, you know, I'm not misrepresenting this piece at all. This is a representative piece. Um, the post, this is about somebody posting it. On the surface, in t- on the surface, intends to highlight hatred that might exist in the neighborhood. Might exist in the neighborhood. We see it on camera. 
Uh, but it mimics a broader national and global pattern of disseminating images to foment dissension in a community still reeling from a horrific incident. That's one. Now, uh, this gets worse. There's a purpose behind sharing that. This is the video. Making the decision to share it with those. Con- this is a, a quote from from uh, an expert. I don't know who this expert is. Uh, making the decision to share it with those comments and having others pass it around to make it go viral. It's fitting into a larger narrative. Okay, right. And uh, here's my favorite one. But this this is a lot of this. The, the views voiced by those standing on the sidewalk in the in Jersey City video might not be considered extreme. I don't know. It's literally like hatefully anti-Semitic. The reason for uh, disseminating it in this context could be driven by extreme political views, said Penny. This, this is a expert. They've, they've uh, interviewed a few. Um, and it says that my fan, uh, videos such as these are a form of propaganda. There's literally no quotes from this video, which is one of the more disturbing videos I've seen in a long time. It has not been widely uh, uh, dis- disseminated, hasn't been discussed on MSNBC and Fox and CNN. And the one piece that I could find out, find about it, say, well, you know, this is just propaganda because they're trying to uh, foment dissension in the community. Like, no, no, we're trying to point well, out. Who's the presumed they from that? They are the sort of, you know, nameless people on Twitter who who are no better than the sort of Richard Spencers of the world. So uh, uh, Barry Wise, uh, who's a, a, fr- a friend of ours, um, tweeted something today from GATA, the, the Jewish Newswire, Jewish Telegraph Agency, of a woman in um, in uh, who is on the school board, I believe, in Jersey City, responding to somebody on um, Facebook and said, why is nobody talking about how these Jewish brutes Jewish brutes have been, you know, coming into our neighborhood and buying up all this blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And okay. this is a lot. This is a kind of a, this Don't is you a like response. Have to be big to be a brute? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, 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 <laughs> that imply a certain like shoulder mass? Yeah, I, the, I don't think the level of brutishness was actually discussed. Okay. But I mean, it's so crazy to me that this stuff is out there and that, you know, I'm happy that people have significant conversations after somebody drives over somebody else in a uh, in a like a, a murder in, in, in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Vehicular homicide. Yeah, vehicular homicide in, in, in Charlottesville and that person's going to be in prison for the rest of their life. But, you know, it's just weird the conversations that we're having about this don't seem to exist and maybe I'm missing them. Uh, uh, to me, the difference between Charlottesville and this is that something like Charlottesville cuts in a clear direction. You can say uh, the outgroup that I am aligned against perpetrated this atrocity. And so you know, you and have of course, anti- Trump's comment too, you, and you have anti-Semitism on the left and the right, which makes it harder for either to kind of seize on any given instance as a cudgel to beat the other side. Uh, but you can think back to the Las Vegas shooting, right? The biggest uh, mass shooting in American history uh, that people seem to stop talking about very quickly and with no particular explanation of what even happened. And it's just another instance where because there was no. Uh, Political motive. No political motive or yeah. none that we know of. No you couldn't one, yeah. point to the perpetrator and use it to generate outrage among your followers, to beat the other side. And uh, I think that that piece is a big part of why we pay attention to mass shootings. Uh, the, only, the only time the victims seem to matter is when it's kids, when it's something like uh, what was the school shooting uh, some years so, ago. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. if the kids are young enough, then it seems to uh, – mm be placed in a story about gun control. But I yeah. even wonder where are the kids from Parkland who were uh, all the time in the media? Maybe they spoke out about the shooting and gun control. Uh, but it's interesting how, uh, as far as press coverage goes, 
it's the biggest thing in the world for a little while and then mm-hmm. just disappears from the map. I think you're right about, about, about all of that. And this one did have those elements where where uh, there was a political motive. They were use, they, they both had AR-15s, which is always uh, quite mm-hmm. handy when you're having this conversation, too. Um, but I think that the political conversation is that you don't want to have a conversation about these, you know, radical black nationalist groups that I don't believe ha- are, are very significant. I, I mean, there's there, there's significant that this stuff happens. I don't believe it's a it's a nationwide problem, but I think that anti-Semitism in general mm-hmm. ha- is is because all you have to do is look at these tables, and we've had conversations in this, on this podcast before about how we tally hate crimes mm-hmm. and how unreliable they are in so many ways. But you know what we have, we know that anti-Semitism is always uh, leading. Huge- just in fastest growing yeah, yeah yeah and this is you know what two percent of the population 1.8 percent of the population something like that but get get like 40 percent of the hate crimes there, i don't know the number there was also a strangled kind of or muffled uh it's better um uh a conversation about it from the cops and the mayor mm-hmm. like weren't i mean i think that we were texting each other like it's weird that we don't know anything about the shooters here for a long time for there, something that was, was a, right out there in public. It'd be one thing if it was the norm for there to be this appropriate reluctance to divulge too many details about the shooting too early. Which I'm fine It'd with. be one thing if it was sort of standard operating procedure for journalists to not engage in too much speculation, to really want to wait to let the facts kind of come out. It's just there have been so many other circumstances where that hasn't been the case. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, we mentioned Charlottesville earlier, and I, I think the – the degree to which the real time sort of wish casting in some respects and and presuming uh, about things is actually kind of calcified and created uh, a narrative about those events, which we don't have to unpack all of that now. But I could contrast this with something a bit more recent, like the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, where, in fact, we did talk about this for a while and we did have a protracted conversation about sort of what this means for America when something like this can happen, something that is obviously anti-Semitic in the way that this really does appear to be. The police at this early on weren't saying as much about that. They have said that this does appear to be the case. There was some letter um, that was left by the shooters, which I don't know that we even have the details. Um, we don't have we don't have the, we don't have a detail um, of, which I don't of know social media posts either. I don't know why you wouldn't divulge that no. sort of detail at this point, unless perhaps you never plan to because you don't want to inspire someone. But again, here it's unusual. But what what I what I'm working my way around to saying in a, in a very drawn out and protracted way, I apologize, sometimes I do that, um, is I'm not sure what I want is for there to be hyperventilating every single time we have a shooting like this and that every no. shooting like this needs to spark a national conversation. But the incidents where it does spark a national conversation and where it doesn't seem important on some I mean, level. it seems it if seems there are obvious. particular attributes of these events that yeah. spark the national conversation and other attributes that squelch it completely. I mean, it's interesting to me that there's not even a gun control conversation after 100 plus rounds are let off. There's 500 rounds or something. down the street from yeah. New York yeah. City, which is the journalistic capital of the country. I mean, there was not the, the world. Um, the like famous... all of the journalists are here. Why aren't they across it's, the river? It's a 15 having minute that conversation. It's a 15 minute ride on the path to get there. The, uh, the North Hollywood bank heist uh, in the 90s. Uh, which was live on television and a yeah. trillion bullets 
were fired. Um, uh, it was more bullets than in uh-huh. this case, and it took longer. Um, but that like di- directly led to the assault weapon uh, ban. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were like, "Jesus Christ, these people have incredible firepower. We've got to do. We got to change the calculus of it." And this is a firefight that like. It wasn't that as as extreme, but it was like that. And you're right. But I think also we should uh, keep in (laughs) mind that we're in the middle of a time when the news is about impeachment. You know, like this, we're we're recording this on Tuesday. I think today was it. The House and the President uh, decided to to spend uh, one point like four trillion dollars until September 2020. Yeah. Yeah. How much coverage did that spending? How much coverage has that received? Mm-hmm. Am I the first person? Well, we don't care about that. In your life, I mean, but nobody, nobody ever covers bipartisan that. consensus no, like, that spending yeah. doesn't matter. But people did cover this uh, ad nauseum between uh, you know January uh, 2011 and uh, the beginning of 2014. That was what right. politics in America were about: those budget fights, a looming, the, looming shutdown. Yeah, but there were also fights. There were conflicts. There were bad guys. I could root for or against Rand Paul. I could root for or against Barack Obama. Um, now they're not really fighting over that. They're fighting over impeachment, and so impeachment becomes the the squirrel, and the and the media is the dog, and they go towards where the conflict is, and they ignore the other stuff. And there's been a lot of big news yeah. there, and that just gets gets uh, drowned out by it. Uh, just one final point on this is that is that, you know, look, there's nothing surprising about it. Um, and it's not even there's a point at which that if you follow politics, politics, or pay attention to politics, that you don't need to even there's no surprise. Right. Republicans care about spending until they don't. Right. Like, oh, my God, the hypocrisy is like, you know, that's that's we all just root for our tribe and our, our side. And, you know, if it, if it fits into our narrative and that's just the way it is and it will always be. But it is in, a, in, in cases like this worth pointing out, particularly with shootings, uh, because there's such a moral imperative in so many of the arguments about shootings. And, and I, I would say that, like, you know, I just, you know, the, the tree of life it was was worse. Um, but I don't think that's why it got the attention it got versus this. I think that when you have an opportunity to beat up your political opponents and you have an opportunity to, to, to pin this on, you know, President Trump or, you know, uh, they're neo-Nazis, right? And he's, and he's given sucker to neo-Nazis in, in Charlottesville. And you can go down that line, right? And, you know, you can probably make a, a, a fairly reasonable case in, in, in some of the cases. But that's, if you don't have that and that's what, you know, that's your fuel, you're going to leave it alone. You're going to kind of not pay attention. And, and the black Hebrew guys are just so weird. They're just weird. Yeah, Nazis are weird too. They're they're weird, (laughs) and Nazis are weird. But as I said a moment ago, I don't don't think threat inflation is the appropriate course ever. I do think there's something to be said for black nationalists actually having a fair amount of cultural currency within particular communities. And for someone like, you know, Farrakhan – to actually have friendly relationships with really prominent hip hop artists and figures in the community and to have people who sort of defend him and rationalize away the most disgusting and disturbing things that he says. And quite frankly, and now I'm getting into something a bit more speculative, the story about the the Jersey City official who's referring to Jewish brutes that was referenced earlier. Yeah. The subtext there is this person asks residents if they are brave enough to explore the shooter's message. Yeah, this and, is the, and, and this is something this is, that I like see like actually pretty routinely in connection with these particular kinds of shootings. I was looking at the YouTube page of the Baton Rouge shooter 
uh, from a couple of years ago. Like you do this. I mean, this is this is what I do when I'm preparing for the show. Um, <laughs> and I was looking at the comments, like the most recent comments, and it, it's not hard. I mean, some people troll on the internet. I'd have to go back and take a look to see just how many of these profiles are legitimate. But I wasn't surprised to find people who said, yeah, there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. You know, rest in peace, brother. He was a real one. He was he was trying his best to to sort of do something about this real problem. I don't want us to do threat inflation, but sometimes I wish we would talk more about people who are perhaps inflating threats and inflaming tensions and creating over concern around some of these issues. If, you know, my perspective on like police involved shootings is correct and we overstate the degree to which black people are at unique risk than talking about it as though there is an existential threat to black life posed by the police is perhaps the kind of hysterical overconcern that might promote people to do things that they might not otherwise do. And if we never have the conversation about that, if when events like this happen, we're unwilling to do the kind of introspection that we might do around other shootings, um, then it seems like we're being a little less than serious um, about the risks that we face. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe the truth here is that what you actually had is a couple who the woman had like lost her job and they had lost their home and they were living out of a truck and they were perhaps disconnected from any other community. And they both kind of got lost in one another and being completely disconnected from the world were able to be radicalized by a, a bizarre religious set of beliefs that generally doesn't turn everyone into a mass shooter who comes into contact with it, but sometimes does. And what we really need to take away from this is that we need to do a better job of reaching out to the people who are close to us who might be sort of prone to do something crazy and violent left alone and in isolation. Maybe that's the lesson and that's the conversation that we ought to be having. Maybe that's more helpful than focusing on the political affiliation of someone who does something ridiculous, considering most people who have these political affiliations or even religious affiliations don't do acts of mass and, violence. And by the way, to your point, it's, it's not terribly different when you see people on the, the Louisiana Shooters uh, YouTube page saying, you know, like, hey, this guy's got a point kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, I, it's not too too different from what happened after nine eleven. I mean, there's you know sure. within minutes of the. Were you talking second... about the celebrations that were happening in New Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why they responded. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it is it is uh, honestly. Yeah, I didn't mean to make that, but uh, the, I mean honestly, that sort of that avalanche of root causes theory. Mm -hmm. That, you know, had we not done X and Y, they would not have done this to us. It's, you know, why do they hate us? Which was a question that was never, no one asked the question, why do I hate them after 9-11? After it was always a one-way street. Like, why do they hate us? And clearly, we've done something to deserve this. And that is always uh, a question that, that, that does not provide satisfying answers. And I think it was fairly recently I saw somebody, I'll dig it up for, for next time, um, who I think was a member of ISIS, uh, who had some manifesto and said, guys, it's not your foreign policy. We just don't, we don't like the way you live. <laughs> it's just like, it's like you're infidels. It doesn't matter what you do. Like you can stay out of Israel. You can do all this stuff. It doesn't matter. We don't care. This is the, our problem with you. And it's not, because it, 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 it applies these kind of rational thought processes to people some, who sometimes aren't very rational. Right? Well, it's all, I mean, I think some people get radicalized because, you know, their village got bombed. 
and that's not, it's, it's, that's it's, not it's, a, it's certainly, a big calculation about no. the foreign policy that got us there. It's no. just like they, they saw the butt end and got pissed. Yeah, I mean, or, it also doesn't mean that you shouldn't have bombed the village. I, and I'm not saying that, that in any particular case. I'm just saying that, you know, I don't think anybody has a terrible amount of sympathy if people in Berlin in 1945 come out and start blowing up children. We're like, they shouldn't have bombed them. I was like, well, yeah, we should have. And that's that's what happened, and we got rid of Nazis that way. And and and, and you know, it's I'm just saying that, that I'm not taking anything specific specific in, in the Middle East. I'm just saying it's not always the calculation that if one bombs, one deserves the response. I mean, because there are a lot of cases in which the that is justified, and the response is not justified, and the way they respond is not justified. It's not as if they say, well, you know, you have planes and we don't, so we're going to kill babies in a in a pizza shop. That's not a calculation that makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. But you know, there is. Is always there's always a chorus of people and that woman by the way uh that camille's quoting who is a i guess a um and the board, like of, on the school board, board of education something or something like, like the yeah. school board uh said this miss uh mr anderson and miss graham went directly to the kosher supermarket i believe they knew they would come out in body bags what is the message uh they were sending are we brave enough to explore the answer to their message are we brave enough to stop the assault on the black communities of america blah blah, blah. and it's basically and, and by the way she uh she signs she signs it uh, uh, I, I, I'm a private citizen, not as a member of the Jersey City Board of Education. <laughs> yeah, please, no, you are. Please don't, please don't yeah. separate the two things, people. <laughs> Good citizens of New Jersey, if yeah. you have any sense whatsoever, do something about that. Anyway, that's that's nuts. That's nuts. It's kind of crazy. Huh? Like people fleeing high rents in New York City and moving to New Jersey or various parts of Brooklyn that have been less than savory in some respects for a long time. Yeah. They're not a threat to the black residents there. Uh, they're actually the opposite of a threat to the black residents there. Generally speaking, they're not bringing like crime and awfulness with them. It's just not a thing. Yeah. Well, it tends uh, to trend in the other direction. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> just, uh, I don't know anything beyond that. That is a Sorry. crazy thing to say. All right. Yeah. Well, we, we veered into towards, uh, we veered into foreign policy a little bit and Connor, I know, um, in the last couple of weeks, you're always writing good and interesting things. But last week, I, I believe in response to the, Afghanistan papers, um, which you talked about last week as well, you wrote a piece about the doves being right, uh, which presumably means that you were, in fact, wrong and not presumably like you divulged as much in the piece. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I regret it being framed that way a little bit because it made it seem as if I was making a coherent case for war when, in fact, I was a 21 year old studying abroad in Spain and not publicly speaking or thinking much about any of this. Uh, mm -hmm. But I did think, like most Americans did, that uh, we probably should respond to 9-11 by taking out the Taliban. and Probably and, gave and as much thought to it as most Americans yeah. as well. And uh, I, I think it was, in hindsight, the wrong call, uh, not because there's no theoretical war that could have been much better. Uh, I've gotten some pushback that says, well, we, you know, it was the occupation that was the problem. We should have just gone in and and taken out bin Laden and been done with it. Uh, I, I just think it's important to recognize that that is not, in fact, what happened, and that given <laughs> the president at the time and the foreign policy team at the time, uh, you know, you go to war with the president and the foreign policy team that you have, and I don't trust uh, the United States foreign policy establishment to uh, get out of a war when it is time to. Yeah, uh, and the costs of staying decades too long are just so tremendous that I think that there should be 
uh, a pretty big presumption against going in in the first place uh, because you're never going to get the best version of the war. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it should probably be close to something that's a last resort uh, or a, a very discreet, uh, you know, I can be sympathetic to there are these people in Rwanda with machetes and they're about to kill this other group of people and maybe we should have done something about that. I don't know. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't tricky cases. Um, and one more thing I'll say is that a, a lot of a lot of the kind of uh, angry emails that I got after I wrote that piece, oh, now you're saying that it was a big mistake. If you're saying, well, didn't you study history? Didn't you study the Vietnam War? Again, in 21, no, I hadn't particularly, you know, I studied the Vietnam War like everyone in high school. But um, but the Gulf War was the context uh, mm-hmm. that uh, I grew up with watching on CNN, watching this relatively successful intervention that um, was big and scary and frightening at 11 years old or whatever I was and then seemed to wrap up relatively quickly with relatively few casualties and seemed to kick this bad guy out of this country that he invaded and seemed to have much of the world's support. And so uh, I, I think that was the context for a lot of people in 2001, not the quagmire of Vietnam, but George H.W. Bush and Norman Schwarzkopf and the Gulf War. And also Yugoslavia, right, where you can bomb Milosevic to the negotiating table really quick after four years of Europeans just absolutely dithering and making everything terrible. Um, that changed the calculus really in a hurry in 1995. And then similarly, although it took longer in Kosovo, just in terms of there wasn't a lot of American casualties associated with it. I think it took about 78 days or something, but it didn't require a lot from America to change the calculus on the ground. And so you come in and, and think uh, that it's fine. I wonder – A it, quick footnote yeah. though, just to add quickly, is that remember that, of course, the last war, uh, the last military conflict of any size that America was involved in was that and it was on behalf of the Muslim uh, population of the region. It was, it was essentially a pro-Muslim war. Yeah, which uh, is something that you, Christopher Hitchens, and nobody else <laughs> remembers <laughs> has, remembers for, for the most part. I mean the, my – generation of weirdo Central European type people uh, do because we lived yeah. there at the time. Uh, but yeah, it's been uh, largely forgotten and, you know, war for oil and all that kind of uh, uh, crap, except now Donald Trump actually wants to have a war for oil. Like you feel like we're going to keep the oil, going to yeah. keep the oil somehow. Um, but I wonder, Connor, um, if uh, if that president or any president would have said, OK, look, they harbored this group of people on purpose who hit us on purpose in an act of war. Mm-hmm. Terrible, terrible, mm-hmm. grievous act of war. They have lost the right to have their regime in power. Mm-hmm. We're going to make them learn that lesson by force. And then once we do that, we're going to get the hell out. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, it was what, December? It was a seven week war. Um, where we lost, I think, three people, five people. It was like really almost nobody died in that war. If they had stated that as the goal and then acted on that goal by saying, all right, sorry, you're dead, but we're getting out of here. Is that a war that you would support if that was the goal? Uh, I mean, with the same people in charge, no, Um, because I don't believe that the same people would would do it that way. Maybe with a different group of people in charge, I suppose. Uh, I think – uh, one person who deserves credit here is Barbara Lee for all the all the many things that I disagree with her about. She was the one person who looked at the AUMF that they passed right after September 11th mm. and said, wow, this is really broad. Uh, this seems to lend itself to a kind of extended engagement abroad that we ought to think very carefully about. And I actually went and read all of the letters, or not all of them, but many of the letters that people sent her that are um, – you can see them at Mills College in Oakland – 
And uh, it, it's an interesting window into anti-war sentiment at the time because the letters are a lot more reasonable and persuasive than the signs you see uh, people carrying on the street. Uh, you know, I don't. I think that anti-war protesters at the time uh, deserve credit for getting the big question right. Uh, but I don't think it was very persuasive to most Americans to have a sign saying, don't start this racist war, for example. Mm. Uh, I don't think it resonated with most people that it was racism that was motivating striking back against uh, this force that had knocked down the Twin Towers and this regime that was harboring them. Um, a last reason I wanted to write the piece was that we're in this moment of populists uh, shaking their fists at elites and saying – uh, you're getting into all of these foreign wars and we need Trump to be the anti-war candidate, not Hillary Clinton. And I'm not unsympathetic to the critique of Hillary Clinton, to the critique of the foreign policy establishment. At the same time, many of these right-leaning populists were gung-ho on both of these wars. Um, yeah. You know, people like Rush Limbaugh, like the Claremont Institute now aligning itself mm -hmm. with uh, an anti-interventionist foreign policy as if it was the pointy-headed elites all along. And it's like, no, you're much more likely to be against these wars if you were um, a lefty academic or if you were a member of the permanent deep state in the State Department, right? Yeah, I don't think Victor Davis Hansen was leading the anti-war <laughs> effort. Yeah, exactly. It's not what I, that's yeah. not how I remember, don't remember the odds. That now. Yeah. And, and so I think it is important for Americans who were tired of these wars to think back and realize uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq had majority support at the time that they were launched. And you can say, oh, the administration lied about Iraq or, or whatever, but I think there is a civic responsibility to – not just cast blame in a military-industrial complex. Maybe you can blame them for staying in so long. Uh, but these were popular wars. And I remain convinced that the kind of nationalist coalition that Donald Trump has put together that tends to bring in jingoists and authoritarians is always going to be more prone to going to war uh, in a knee-jerk way in response to some provocation than other possible coalitions. And, you know, there's no coalition, obviously, that is before us that just isn't going to go to war reliably. Uh, but I do fear uh, what the Trump coalition would do. You know, especially given Trump himself, you can go back and watch YouTube videos of him saying that we should go into Libya. Mm -hmm. um, he's a lot more hawkish than he makes himself out to be now. Shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. I mean, he's it, it depends. It doesn't really depend on on the actual situation. It just depends on the mood of the country and what he thinks he's going to uh, get out of it. The one I think that most of that is right. I would it, it, only thing I would push back on is that um, you know I've said this before is that I think Barbara Lee is to be commended in the same way the Maoist international movement is to be condemned. They're, they're sort of mistakenly right. Barbara Lee, there's nothing you could do that that Barbara Lee would have agreed with. I mean, she's, I, I mean, I, I think the, the last foreign policy thing I remember Barbara Lee making a stand on was Grenada and being uh, quite a friend of Maurice Bishop and the New Jewel movement. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, this is this is a woman that, you know. I hear the is, new record's going to drop. It's, it's, gonna be it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Run the New Jewels. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like it is like she's a, a, a Castro pal. She's like a, of that ilk. I don't think it's like I think there's a lot of people and I don't say this just because of where we are and who I'm with. But the sort of Justin Amash's of the world who think this thing through and say, here is why I, I Barbara Lee is somebody who who is 
you know, the Marx Brothers version of American foreign policy of whatever it is, I'm against it. And it can, but it could be rational maybe, and well thought out with a, with but, a different administration. Should have still opposed. But it. maybe there is value in being dumbly right. There's, there's, right? there's like maybe, some value maybe we need that. to have uh, X amount of, you know, Tulsi Gabbards in the mix mm-hmm. who is going to do crazy shit like go to Syria, which is just the not. I, I don't I can't invent a, a way that that was a good trip. Um, other people can disagree. Maybe Camille could disagree. But, uh, but can. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I don't think it's quite fair to call her dumbly right. I take your point about uh, other things that she's done that align <laughs> with this. And and, uh, you know, you can say that. Uh, a broken clock is is right twice. Uh, at the same time, she was pretty directly critical of the way that the AUMF was more expansive than people were uh, making it out to be, and the way that it would be used for all sorts of conflicts that had nothing to do with uh, Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And it has been used in that way uh, for for years and years and years. And there uh, was was just no prospect of getting rid of it for so long. And, and so she was. Uh, precisely right about that, even if her sort of larger uh, foreign policy critique might have been wrong. And yeah, that's, I, I and think that's the, an I mean, issue the, the, uh, that our, our friend yeah. Eli Lake wrote a, a great piece yeah. uh, for Reason about, uh, you know, like seven years ago, the se- September 14th country. We think about yeah. September 11th. Actually, mm-hmm. September 14th is the day of the AUMF. And I think some of the better Congress critters, and there's not many of them, have been focusing on that. And I, in fact, uh, not a small number of the Democratic presidential candidates, including uh, Pete Buttigieg, including Elizabeth Warren, they have all pointed out this AOMF is bad. We've mm-hmm. got to get rid of it. We've got to start over and and uh, and reauthorize these things or not authorize these things. Sunset that. The, the look, quote, look, there was a lot before of we, before yeah. we go further. The yeah. quote is worth entertaining an open ended war with neither an exit strategy nor a focused target. I mean, she was exactly right. Yeah, but that's what everybody was saying. I mean, uh, focus focus target. uh, I I think there was a focus target. There was, but there, but there is. But she was right about. No, we're going to depose the Taliban. Screw that. Yeah, that's Uh, expanded after that pretty considerably. But Uh, she's absolutely right in that there's no there's no end in sight of mm-hmm. it and it's an and it's an open-ended authorization. I Absolutely. think it was it wasn't rewritten. It was written in a fairly broad way. It was the the um the folks who were responsible for 9/11 and like all of their compatriots, which that right. same tortured that same sure. phrase has been used to justify us pursuing I'm, everyone including I'm in vigorous, ISIS and beyond. I'm in vigorous agreement. I'm just okay. saying that the the actual target of the actual uh the, the main action was known and elucidated at the time. It might not have been, you know, but we, I'm saying we in, were going the, to get in the, the AUMF, it was yeah. it was okay. sufficiently elastic that yes. it could be used and in other context. And she and was to precisely right, right about she was, this. She was precisely right. I, about my that. only argument here is that is that it, it, that was the writing at the time. The people that were opposing this at the time, whether it was international answer or people mm-hmm. that were you know sort of legal scholars that are attacking people like John Yu, justifiably so. That that was kind of the, the stuff that was floating out there, and she was hoovering that up and regurgitating. I'm, my but, only argument is that I guarantee you, if that was narrowly drawn, she would have opposed it too. So I have sure. some, I have a completely unfair. There's a record. There's a. She has but a record. Maybe, that suggests Moynihan, that your revulsion, yeah. your yeah. knee-jerk revulsion of these people, which I'm pointing at you <laughs> yeah. because these I people. absolutely share. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe that blinds you to the moments that they could be true, and maybe what Connor is doing is reminding us that it's oh, when when everyone is outnumbered and there's only one vote on the other side. Like maybe take that vote a little bit more seriously, particularly given the last twenty years and maybe longer. Uh, to whatever Camille's going to say to me now, um, uh, <laughs> point in the way the America war gets done, which is um, 
It's very good at the initial deposing of whatever, and then it just lasts forever. And it's the, the thing that I wonder about is, and again, this is a stuff for you know historical novels. I mean, there's no way of knowing, but what the reaction. Uh, from the American public would have been if rather than saying that this was overly broad, the, this authorization of military force, um, just saying, well, we don't trust the people in DOD and the Pentagon had just been attacked. Right. And we don't trust. And remember that, that uh, Donald Rumsfeld was like a pinup for a bit. Everybody, I knew a, a, a very lefty woman saying like she was like in love with Donald Rumsfeld watching his news conferences after his press conferences after 9-11. Don't talk about Catherine Manga Ward like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's texting me now uh, with voice notes from that time. But what, what would the reaction of Americans have been if nothing had happened at all? And I think that that is, I mean, this Bar- yeah, Barbara Lee's thing is that it just is kind of unthinkable. And I don't know that that would have been a, the wrong tactic and maybe sort of, you know, sitting and thinking about it a little bit. I mean, it was it was what? When did the bombing start in October, late October? Yeah. So, it was, you know, over a month. And I remember that time being like, come, get, let's go. Let's go. We're, we're, something's happened. We need to respond to this. And I think that was a very common sentiment. I guess, like Connor, I was young, and then I was soon thereafter. I was in Europe, and in Europe, you're asked to answer for every uh, American foreign policy uh, failing since the War of 1812. And it makes you a fucking hawk. And it hawk, makes it? you a hawk. It makes you angry. <laughs> and you're like, everywhere you go, I didn't, nobody paid me from the embassy, but I'm acting as this sort of de facto ambassador at dinner parties and the rest of it. And I started getting pissed off. I've done the weird position of being in Sevilla studying abroad and Bin Laden giving these speeches talking about taking back Al-Andalus. And so the people in Sevilla who are, you know, pretty conservative part of Spain to begin with were very, uh, very friendly to the American efforts at the time. Yeah. And look, Spain is a very different case because, I mean, remember after the, after the train bombing, they kicked the government out which was a conservative government that was uh, was aligned with the Bush administration for saying that they uh, initially deflected and saying it was ETA, that it was the Basque separatists, which clearly wasn't the Basque separatists. And they right. lost uh, and say, Jose Maria Aznar, who I think it was him that lost the election right after that. And uh, socialists, so social Democrats came in. And it was funny because it's like very it's a very European thing. The Spanish punished them after an Al-Qaeda attack for not telling everybody there was an Al-Qaeda attack. So I have a completely unfair uh, <laughs> query for the group. At least you're being honest about it. Um, yeah, totally. Um, because I, I, I think I have an answer. I don't know it, how satisfied I am with it at this stage. But we talk a lot about what bad decisions around military engagements and conflict look like. There, there may be any number of critical things to be said around the room about the Bush doctrine and perhaps the, the, the Powell, Powell's pottery barn rule is like insufficient and maybe just war theory is not sort of a satisfactory rubric for us to use to evaluate conflicts. What the hell does good foreign policy for the U.S. actually look like? And I, I'm polling the room and for me, maybe it's just my core principle is you should be very careful. This shit could go badly. Usually it does. There's almost certainly unintended consequences that you haven't considered. And quite frankly, even in your sort of push to achieve your goals, 
it's not obvious that any price is worth paying. But you're not all, it's, it's, but I, I'm not telling you much about when you should do something. That what you're talking about that. is not foreign policy, although ultimately that's the way it gets applied. You're talking about when do we use force and when do we not. Sure. And, and too much of foreign policy is rests about, yeah. around that because that's where all of the money is. Mm-hmm. That's where all of like the incentives go. That's where the majority of our advantage is. And especially, though, definitely not only uh, under Trump that uh, there has been a, a, a kind of almost deliberate leakage of uh, leadership positions in other ways, mm-hmm. like sort of the moral uh, leadership position in the world, whatever that means. I mean, it's, it's a lot of myth associated with it, but myths are important, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that's that's been frittered. And it's it's a sign. Rosa Brooks has written about this a lot really well, I think. Uh, who worked in Obama's State Department and came out of that. She had been an L.A. Times columnist when I was at the L.A. Times. Um, the and, daughter of Barbara Ehrenreich, yeah, correct? Yeah, the daughter of yeah. Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, and she's a pretty shrill anti-Bush columnist. Gets into uh, the, uh, uh, I believe, State Department. It's like an undersecretary, like a pretty high position, and comes out of there and says, we militarize everything. That is the structure of decision making, and it's a disaster. It's a very, I think, accurate critique. So even the posing of your question is accurate, and it's also like that's not how foreign policy should be, and hopefully that's not how it actually is in terms of its managing relations with the international community in a way that is – preferably good for everybody. The Rosa Brixes of the world are rare, though. I mean, there's so many people that have, um, you know, a vision of foreign policy that is that is one that is maybe not is more non-interventionist and they get sucked up by the system. I mean, a number of people that go into, you know, Obama world and come out and say and defend the policies, the foreign policy decisions yes. of the Obama administration. You know, that's that's quite common. But to, to Camille's point, I mean, the, the thing that the certain foreign policy mandarins always talk about is the more you retreat, the more they want to punch you. I don't know how I don't know how true that is. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I, I sort of tend not to is that, you know, if you show weakness, they will show strength. And you're going to eventually have to show strength at some point. I mean, there's sort of a lot of theory about that. But the thing that's it's really interesting is that if it, the more democratic you are, the more uh, difficulty you have executing foreign policy. This seems fairly obvious. But look uh, at like look, democratic meaning. Look, the, look at Russia, for instance. Russia's an example. Uh, just like yeah. you're not talking about the Democratic Party. You're no, talking no, no, about, talking the about democracy. Yes, the yes, so yes, yes, yes. Like if you look at if you look at Russia, you have direct to what people say in the root causes theory. You have Beslan. You know, where children are murdered by Al Qaeda affiliated people that are on their doorstep in 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 Chechnya, in Dagestan, and Turkmenistan, etc. And then you have the the siege of the opera in which they gassed everybody and killed the audience and the terrorists. You have the apartment bombings, which a lot of people credibly <laughs> say was actually the FSB. But you have these things. You have the subway bombings. You have the uh, airport uh, in, in in Moscow was bombed, and you have after that. The Russian military going into Syria. And there's not because you have a you have a, a sort of media that is completely controlled by the Kremlin with a few very, very small exceptions. Um, and even those like Echo Moscow is less of a um, sort of opposition radio station than it was. And you just don't have that sort of response. I mean, you also don't have that re- response from Europe. You don't have Europeans going in front of. Russian embassies during the Syrian war when children are being, you know, liquidated by Russian bombs every day, every day. Right. And then you have the Wagner group, which is, you know, they're they're mercenaries 
committing unspeakable war crimes that are effectively acknowledged by people, and we have video of it and the rest of it, that do not rise to the level of Abu Ghraib. You don't have those images, right? Russia doesn't, it gets away with this. And the reason they get away with it is they do not give a shit what the public thinks and they control what the public sees. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of other factors in there too. But, you know, Russian foreign policy right now is imperialist in the way that American foreign policy is imperialist. Not in the sense that they want to take over countries and actually make them Russian territories. C- kind of do. Well, <laughs> in their, I mean, in Ukraine, of course. But they think of that as not imperialism. They think of that as part of their, it's actually their homeland. The yeah. You know, yeah, not like, you know, America or Spain being in the Philippines or something. They see this in a, in a rather different way. But the international outcry is something that everybody has to contend with, which is obviously was a calculation. When I, when I talked to um, uh, Samantha Power and I brought up the, the red line, in a lot of this, and I said how much of this was freighted with the, with the problems of Iraq and basically said all of it. All you know? of it I mean, yeah. this is our decisions are based on the world's response and our domestic response to our foreign policy failures. When you look at Russia, that just is not, is not so much the case. I mean, you have a, a small example of this in, in, in the true, much more, much more aggressive dictatorship of the Soviet Union of mothers uh, protesting against their, their sons going to Afghanistan. Uh, from 79 to when they pulled out in 87, 88, whatever that was. And, you know, Gorbachev was responding to that. But that was also a liberalizing person, liberalizing figure. But, yeah, it's a, it's a very – it depends on where you are. I mean, the U.S.'s foreign policy is, 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 is quite different. I, I don't know if this is in tension with what you're saying or not, but my wish for future decisions about foreign policy isn't go or not in any particular instance. I probably uh, don't have the expertise to know most of the time. Uh, what I want are structural differences that – one, force every member of Congress to vote regularly to authorize wars and to reauthorize them. Like every year, I want them to have to reauthorize the Seems war. Seems like a good idea. I want a Aren't line item. to do that now? <laughs> not, not required every year. I want them paid for, like so that they cost people, so that the costs are clear. Mm-hmm. I want photos of the people who are killed, the caskets, instead of just kind of pretending that they don't exist. And uh, to me, those structural changes are the way that you fix uh, something that is broken. You don't want a single individual, a president, to be basing his decisions on re-election, on talking to the poor wounded veteran at Walter Reed and not wanting his trip abroad to be in vain, uh, you know, about their place in history. Hmm. Uh, I want Congress and its responsiveness to the people who are going to face elections and maybe get voted out of office to have to stand up. And uh, I, I think there's a real danger that we're hurtling toward where, you know, it's hard to remember this now, but Bush, of course, ran in 2000 on having a humble foreign policy and avoiding mm-hmm. nation building. And yeah. that was what Americans wanted. Yeah. And then Barack Obama ran as the anti-war president who wasn't going to get in dumb wars. No and then he gets wars. in and appoints Hillary Clinton as his secretary of state <laughs> and goes into Libya. And then Donald Trump runs as the bring the troops home. Uh, but he doesn't bring them home. He just kind of moves them away from the Kurds in Syria to like another part of Syria or like into Iraq. And like they don't come home. The wars don't end. And the American electorate seems to be willing to go with increasing 
versions of outsiders in order to like bring the troops home. Mm-hmm. So who knows where we're going to go next? If it's Marianne Williams, someone like her one day, or I, I don't know. But there needs to be some democratic responsiveness, mm-hmm. uh, or you just end up having some weird consequences for the political system for democracy. One, uh, I, I don't I, have I a lot. I think that proposal. I, I, yeah, I, so do I. Um, I. I don't have a lot of faith in the democratic field in general. One aspect of them that is interesting and underplayed is the extent to which, and I referenced it before, that when asked, uh, New York Times asked them all the same question about two months back. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, you know, what do you do in Afghanistan? And pretty much all of them with different levels of hemming and hawing were like, get the hell out. Um, it to a way that was kind of hard to imagine. And a lot of them name checked AUMFs in a very detailed and helpful structural kind of way. Um, Joe Biden in the Samantha Power book comes across and this will be the only time I say this. So just go ahead and mark this whims at uh, uh, it's the only time that Joe Biden has sounded comparatively sensible on foreign policy. He emerges as the dove. In the Obama administration, at every key moment, he was like, don't draw the red line. Let's not go to war. Libya, no. Sorry, Mike. Michael. <laughs> I was like, I, I'll only pound the table. Actually, yeah. no, we can pound the table it's here, not just not in Williamsburg. Um, shock absorbent. It was a little much to call Assad Esther Williams, though. I thought that I, you know, Biden went over the line there. Uh, but, like, seriously, he was he was the impediment. And, and uh, the way that she describes this, and she's sort of more the liberal interventionist or liberal internationalist kind of a, um, a point of view, humanitarian intervention. Um, is that uh, Biden felt burned by Iraq? He did a he pulled a Friedersdorf uh, on Afghanistan <laughs> with Iraq. Not fully. He didn't go full Friedersdorf because Never no. Full no Friedersdorf. I mean, it's well known. Did Friedersdorf pull up <laughs> <Yeah>. Biden? <laughs> I I, did his eye I just, fall I out? Yeah, and then, like, the teeth get and yeah. he started like grabbing, sniffing yeah. people's hair. Yeah. 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 Go right now. Let's do Bush a straight there. razor in a rain barrel that I <laughs> rubbed on the curb <laughs> to make it rusty. So maybe, <laughs> maybe the Democratic field is and when Tulsi Gabbard says, you know, you all have uh, Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. I appreciate the gesture. I appreciate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. her you know, wearing the anti-war and anti-interventionist mantle, uh, even if she's weird around the edges. Um, but her critique of like, you all have her foreign policy. They don't. They really actually don't. Peter Buttigieg does not have Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. Mm. He's not walking around saying, you know, Libya was uh, the, the application of smart power at its best. That is absolutely not what he is saying. Biden is not saying this, which is a surprise. Kind of uh-huh. learned that uh-huh. in the, which, which in the power the, uh, thing. And it's funny because of um, stupid um, partisan Republican grandstanding is that the only reason that people have a sort of negative view of Libya at all is because of the Benghazi hearings. And, you know, four Americans died at Benghazi. And like, what's the death toll otherwise? I mean, we don't care when there's no death toll of Americans, more or less. And so it's, it hasn't really sunk in when Hillary Clinton was running for president. That was not a sharp critique that landed with a lot of people because Libya is a mess. And I think most people presume it would be a mess if we weren't there anyway. And those guys died at Benghazi. And then we had those hearings and there was movies about it. And it was it's terrible. More hearings. Yeah. And more hearings more and more hearings. And Trey Gowdy was having his hearings at his self and at his backyard. <laughs> What's he doing right now, by the way? Uh, he's a is lawyer. It, and he's now he Fox. Uh, he was. Uh, yeah, he was a Fox contributor and he was a lawyer. Recently oh, rehired. Yeah. Recent rehired. Yeah, well, he yeah. left because he was going to go do the thing with the Trump with administration, the Trump administration yeah. the job wasn't fully solidified. They yeah. sort of botched the announcement. He left yeah. and then he came back. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Never never trust a, a Trump job announcement. <laughs> you don't want to wait until you get the paperwork and say, and say you do that. Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, the foreign policy stuff is 
you know, amazingly difficult. And I think the things that it's always hard for me because I think the reasons given by people who I essentially line up with these days as far as as far as foreign policy and skepticism of American uh, foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, is that I, I, I always want to be with them until I hear them talk about it. You know, and it's like, oh, it's a war for oil. And, you know, it's because of these. And I'm like, I can't. I, I have to walk away. It's the, it, the forward motion of the American foreign policy machine is 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 this thing that one cannot control in a lot of ways. And you talk to people like in the State Department, it's why those Obama people come out like, you know, much more hawkish and, you know, you know, advising that Anwar al-Awlaki and his son be be blown up in the middle of the desert in Yemen. And it's like that that kind of stuff is like that, number one. And number two is that it, there's always this this incredibly pompous way of thinking about America that we are the root of and the cause of all problems is that we can get into it of like, should we be, you know, helping the Saudis in their war against the Houthi rebels and their proxy war with the Iranians in Yemen. But, you know, this stuff, if we back out, we exacerbated it all, all of it. I mean, there's probably, I can't imagine a place in the Middle East where you haven't exacerbated the problems, but they exist anyway. Um, but, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I have a hard time being on side with the people that I actually agree with. The, uh, the, to answer your question, um, I think that in the moment that we live through, I wrote a piece uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, populism, actually quoting from um, a great study from the Tony Blair Institute uh, from a year ago, and they're updating that it fucking now. fucking neocon over there. <laughs> right? Neocon guy. Um, it, they were pretty good in like saying that the, you know, the people who were flying the flag in the 90s made a lot of mistakes, and the people who, who – um, were big cheerleaders for these supranational organizations that took away people's sovereignty in the name of a sort of a technocratic neoliberal elite. They did not pay proper respect to democratic, you know, checking in with their own population. So it was good. But anyways, rise of population populism over the last decade has been pretty striking, right? Like regard, you can define populism in different ways and they, they, they break it out into, the category of like cultural populism, which they will throw in with like Modi and in, in India, Trump, they put in that category. Um, they kind of create a category called anti-establishment populism, which is somewhat different than cultural. Uh, but then they have the socioeconomic, which is more kind of boulevard um, or, you know, uh, the Chavezista. But at any rate, there's way more people who live under this now than 10 years ago. Um, and in writing about this, and this is, uh, I think, published the morning or close to the British elections, um, kind of solidified. I talked about this last time uh, we're, we gathered together. Um, like, that's the world we live in. Like, that's not going away. People are, there is a worldwide, whether it's left, whether it's right, whether it's Bannon, whether it's uh, Sanders or Corbyn. And it's not Corbyn actually anymore. Um, but that, but that's where we not are. Yet. That's where we Hang are right on. now. And so, like, how are you going to adapt to this reality? And so, for me, um, uh, the person who is thinking about this in a way that is actually productive is, as I've mentioned before, Emmanuel Macron at some point. Like, NATO as we know it is not the thing anymore. We have to, like, redecide whether we are doing this NATO thing or not. And for me, those things would be, okay, we redecide how uh, the U.S. is going to sit in the world's trading system and what the mechanism is. The WTO died last week. 
Another, I know, another, yeah, I know I noticed it. Another amazing. story yeah. that just kind of like, ah, you know, whatever, the yeah. WTO just died. <laughs> yeah. um, wow, that's kind of a thing. Um, so, all right, uh, there's a lot of people who are licking their wounds. Uh, a lot of, of writers who I respect in England, uh, Timothy Gardnash, the great uh, historian of and journalists of the Central European Revolutions, you know, licking their wounds after Boris Johnson. And I kind of want to give him a hug and slap him in the face and like say, all right, get get with it. Like stop lamenting this world that is gone because it is gone. The, 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 the need for people to express their sense of reasserting their sovereignty over matters that they want to have input on, whether it's immigration or trade or whatever, um, that's strong and it's being there's a correction afoot. So the purpose of American foreign policy, I think, is to check in with the American people. Sound like a politician for a second there. Um, <laughs> the American people really want. Uh, but no, I mean, if you poll Americans, they want to have an alliance with like four countries. And it's all like England, Australia, where, where, where are the white English speakers at and Israel. Um, that's, that's, ba- the, when, that's where you get to 60 plus percent. We're happy with those. We're not so happy about Estonia. So like if you're going to do Estonia and I want to do Estonia, Michael wants to do Estonia in like the, his heart of hearts. Um, I'm literally running for parliament in Estonia <laughs> yeah, next week. Right now. I've got um, one of those e-passports that they give out. So, but I think the purpose <laughs> of American foreign policy is to like, Let's remake all of those arguments and have those discussions with the partners out there. Let's try to figure out a way to to uh, withstand, uh, adapt to the moment that we live in in a way that doesn't lead to a stupid mercantilist nightmare, which I think we're going into. And I'm very much so. super Is that bummed the right out pronunciation? about pronunciation. You're the one who I always goes off Marca- mercantilist. Yeah. Well, Some, how, how would you pronounce not mercantilist? Did you see one of our one of yeah. our super fans? Uh, actually, it was, it's uh, I, it was Nathan Lemer of uh, formerly of the uh, of the uh, FCC, FCC yeah. saying he, he would pay an extra tier to have me read names out of a, a phone joke. book. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. my pronunciation is so so bad. Yeah. About I, just everything. one recommendation on that before we move on is that um, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, our, our friend who, who works over at the daily um, did a great episode today. Um, a very, very good episode today. Oh, because, Andy Mills. Exactly. Uh, Andy the Mills, the there. producer over there. Who's great. And he did the, the uh, ISIS podcast too. Mm-hmm. Um, they did one today on a small uh, town in the middle of England you used to used to have a coal pit there in the eighties during the minor strike was, you know, not only a labor stronghold, but this is a, this is a Skinner, Arthur Scargill, like, you know, really far left labor stronghold. Very, very. And, the, and, and, and for the first time they all flipped, um, not the first time is the previous election too, but they, they, they voted for Brexit and they flipped in a very big way for Boris Johnson, which is astonishing. And for their, you know, because, you know, it's through their local MP who's a conservative. You have a conservative winning and, and beating, uh, uh, the beast, uh, uh, the red honorable, uh, gentleman, uh, Mr. Skinner, who is 86, seven years old. And like one of the sort of lions of, of parliament sort of left-wing lions of parliament. And they do a very good a, a job of explaining exactly how it happens. And it makes you annoyed at the way Brexit is covered. I think Brexit um, is, it was a bad idea for, for, for a variety of reasons. But you see these people talking about the coal pit closed and then this sportswear uh, manufacturer makes like tracksuit bottoms, very popular in England too. Uh, you know, they, they have all these uh, low, like sort of shittier jobs. 
And uh, they have this problem that you have in the U.S. too, is that nobody wants them because they're temporary jobs. They don't get good benefits from them. Like, you know, it's, it's shittier pay and it's pretty great for Polish people. And so there's a lot of Polish people there. And every person voted for Brexit because they don't want the Polish people there. And it's not a racialized thing. And it's important to remember that immigration doesn't always have to be that way. And it is like this is the case, the Polish plumber which is a hate figure in Europe um, from like 2007. I remember when I was f- f- five, six, seven, there was a big billboard of the Polish plumber. They were in the 90s already. Yeah, yeah. and it was like these guys from Eastern Europe will, will, will take any job and they're undermining our wages. Everyone was trying to do something about it. Like Ello in Sweden, the union was trying to do something about it. They became, you know, like unions often can be, uh, very, very anti-immigration. And in the sort of contiguous EU, that means being opposed to the European Union because then you get to set your own border policy. So you understand, and these people are like, you know, heavily accented sort of middle England people who used to work in the coal pits and hated Margaret Thatcher with a passion that was that was unsurpassed in modern British history of the hate that was directed towards her by miners and by the and the NUM, the National Union of Miners, that that is is, you know, insane. And now they're voting for conservatives and they're voting for conservatives of a posh sounding, you know, in like madman like uh, and i mean that in a, a positive like i don't think he's a crazy person in that way but like a funny weird shambolic kind of boris johnson who's an eaten oxbridge guy right but you know they're <laughs> voting for him and it's because they want to and that's the chorus today when they open parliament today get brexit done that's what they're interested in and that's a, a version of populism it's very easy to trace it's very easy to understand but if you read the guardian and the guardian only you'll say like Wow, we didn't know uh, British people were so racist. Well, they're, uh, mm-hmm. those people there are racist against Polish people, if that's racism. It's not. It's their, whether they're right about this or wrong about this, and I think they happen to be wrong, is the, seeing the immediate results of that from a coal pit uh, uh, you know, closing in 1985 and 1986, which were run by the, the government, obviously. The government's choosing which coal, coal pits to keep in, in operation. And uh, it's hilarious because the left, uh, the British left, like the, the, the kind of hard left, at the time, uh, whose people like Seamus Mill now and the people that, uh, that were around Jeremy Corbyn were desperately trying to keep coal <laughs> burning in England, <laughs> which you know, was going to change uh, over time. But yeah, the, to, the, to the populist thing is that you, it's, a, it's a huge mistake to, 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 to paint with these brushes that the Trump voters are racist only. And there's obviously some that are. <laughs> uh, that the, the people who voted for Brexit are, are, are knuckle-dragging uh, people who who hate Muslims or something they 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 are afraid of a lot of people and I think they're wrong about it but 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 it's understandable. Well, Michael, the difficulty with what you're proposing is that the narrative you just laid out is complicated and simpler narratives went out. They're racist. They're knuckle draggers, and I like to demonize people because it makes it easier for me to justify myself and my own views. And I don't. Have and to because some are, you get to you get to do it fairly convincingly. Uh, some some always are. Yeah. Um, I wonder if anyone actually walked through Times Square on their way over to the studio because Tried I've seen to. reports that there are pro impeachment rallies happening all over the country, including in Times Square. Some of the reporting I saw earlier said that it was stretching like five city blocks. The pro impeachment rally. I didn't see this. Came from the West. Perhaps it's fake news. Donald Trump <laughs> has been warning us about fake news for a while. Um, I, I wonder, and I, I wanted to talk about some other things as well, but 
Connor, since you're in the room and since I know you've been writing about this recently, if we could pivot there really quickly, given that we may be um, at impeachment eve, it seems appropriate to revisit this. Um, And Connor, you wrote a piece earlier this week, I'm looking at now, Inside the Republican Case Against Impeachment, which I think it's a Republican case against impeachment that at least in the House is probably not going to carry the day uh, when the votes are cast tomorrow. Um, But there is something that you wrote that I've asked about in the room before um, that I think is worth putting to you Um, in terms of the Democrat case um, against the president, the two articles that he that they are considering. Part of their case is that when the president sought this favor from the Ukrainian president, um, whether or not the money was sort of a contingency related to it. Their claim is that he did all of this for, quote, corrupt purposes in pursuit of personal political benefit, unquote. Um, And I think in your piece, you said that it strains credulity to actually believe that the president was doing this without seeking some sort of personal political benefit or was only doing it or wasn't doing it, at least in some respect, to to achieve some personal political benefit. Right. And I I think that's right. But here's the question I have for you. Mm hmm. Does it matter to you if the president actually believes that Joe Biden and his son were up to no good and thinks that believes that it was necessary to continue these investigations, not not necessarily open them, but to continue these investigations to get to the truth because he thought it was so outrageous, whether or not it's hypocritical. Fine. No, that his, but does his that state of mind to matter to you? His state of mind doesn't matter to me. Uh, I think to individually and exclusively target your um, likely you know your likely election opponent mm-hmm. is corrupt and self-serving and wrong whatever your crazy state of mind might be mm-hmm. and that uh, you know it's funny because you can step back in the abstract and say well how can you ever really know and, and the Republicans engage in this kind of rhetoric how can you ever really know if a president does something for just personal benefit or for uh, some mix of motives or for and it's like, well, yeah, it is really hard to know that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times. And yet you have this guy who hired Paul Manafort, hired Rudy Giuliani, who's still running around with all kinds of Ukrainian clients doing God knows what monetizing, monetizing his ties to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, monetizing his ties to President Trump. And you have Trump coming into office, not seeming to care very much about the Biden's alleged corruption in the Ukraine until – Biden was polling very well against him, and so the timing was very suspicious. Uh-huh. And you put all these things together, and there's just no plausible way that something like what the Democrats allege wasn't going on. And there, there's just really the the Republican case against impeachment in the was it the Judiciary Committee was the one that just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they are act against though Trump did nothing wrong that. This was all just totally above board that Sondland was just misinformed and making things up. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much unexplained if you want to have that theory of the case. Like how do you fit Rudy Giuliani into that theory? How do you fit the personal attorney of the president going to Ukraine, specifically asking for the Bidens to be investigated, telling the press I'm doing this on to behalf help, of my client? My client. It, yeah. it just um, – To help it, my client and perhaps the country. It it just goes so far beyond the realm of what is plausible that what would normally be my kind of overwhelming caution about attributing motives 
Uh, it's just like you found the case where I kind of feel like I can attribute motives. Uh, it just doesn't get much more clear cut than this. And I don't think that this is like a criminal case where we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt uh, whether Trump did something or not. The, the question is, um, does it seem to a reasonable person like he was acting for corrupt motives in a way that he's likely to continue doing and that's harmful to the country? And I like your formulation a lot that uh, presidents misbehave a lot. And in a kind of Gene Healy cult of the presidency kind of way, maybe if we start pushing back against these things mm -hmm. uh, more, you would have more careful presidents. For this reason, I wish that impeachment was a lot less narrow than it is. I wish it was delving into the ways that I think Trump is profiting in his private businesses uh, from the presidency. Uh, I wish that it was going into what I think was his unlawful bombing of Syria. Uh, I think that there's a longer list of articles of impeachment that could reasonably be drawn up. And uh, I kind of don't like the idea. You know, Nick Gillespie has made this point uh, on the Reason podcast that – uh, is this Ukraine thing really the most egregious thing that a president has done? And he he kind of doesn't like the implication that that is so. Um, but uh, it, it's what Democrats are putting forth, and I think it is wrong, and I'm for more impeachment. It's such a mm. big threshold in the House and the Senate that I don't think it's very likely that it will get out of hand and be abused. There's just not that many cases when two-thirds of the Senate are going to be willing to remove a president. I think you, you might have also said something along the lines of if they don't – impeach or remove here, that that would be that would an egregious outcome, that, that they ought to be pursuing this. And well, I think it is. A, it would be a very harmful thing if every elected president started leaning on foreign leaders to uh, advantage them in domestic political things. It seems like a very realistic danger. The president has a huge amount of uh, sway over foreign leaders, especially countries with intelligence services that are more sophisticated than Ukraine's. Uh, you know, what if it was Trump literally asked China to look into the Bidens too. <laughs> so like, like, no, he'll, he'll be doing that with Turkey, with Israel and Trump and himself, Saudi Arabia. If, for sure. if there's no penalty, why won't Trump himself keep doing this up until the election? Uh, and, you know, maybe he'll start going after senators or members of Congress before the next midterms. If he's reelected, who knows if there's no penalty, uh, it's one of those cases where impeachment seems like the only remedy. What about censure? I mean, a censure that is actually bipartisan. I, censure relies on shame, a sense of shame that I don't think Trump possesses. Uh -huh. But I mean, it's still a matter of communicating a message to the American people, perhaps to hold the guy accountable, maybe to denigrate him, to diminish his chances of winning again. If he, in fact, is a, poses a particular threat, wouldn't censure on a bipartisan basis, be a better outcome than an impeachment where he just ends up getting acquitted in the Senate by his compatriots? Maybe. Obviously, getting acquitted in the Senate isn't ideal if you're coming from the perspective that I am. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of worry that censure, you know, he would just put like uh, the most perfect censure ever on a red hat and, and, and revel in it, right? Like, um, kind of worry. Maybe, maybe. I, I think the part of what makes me wonder about, and I, I'm, I'm still in favor of impeachment. I haven't... Uh, changed my mind, like yeah. the flip-flopper in chief, <laughs> Matt Welch, um, who's perhaps changed his mind again, come back to the side I of know, the Justin Amash just tweeted, so I might have a different <laughs> <laughs> But But I wonder about something else that I, I, you mentioned when I was uh, texting with you earlier, and I said, is there anything that's kind of on your heart to discuss mm -hmm. with us? Um, and it's the fact that like most Americans don't actually give a shit about Ukraine. Like They can't find Ukraine on the map. I suspect that most of the people who are in the streets who are angry about this, they, they're kind of angry about the specific thing that the president did wrong. 
but most of them already hated his ass and wanted to find a reason to get him out. Yeah. And we were committed to, quote, impeach the motherfucker before this particular perfect phone call was made. This this was, a, in some respects, legitimately a foregone conclusion. And the president – and in two respects. One, they really wanted to do it. And two, this particular president is so – careless and flagrant that he was going to give them ample opportunity to impeach him for something legitimately, I will say, Mm -hmm. um, definitively. I'm saying this is legitimate people, Um, but they don't actually care about Ukraine and they don't care about Ukraine the way they don't care about a lot of other things that you've been thinking about that Americans don't care about. And I, I mean, you could run down the the list. Uh, Americans generally don't care about Hong Kong. Um, they don't care about the the weakers in China. They don't care about the new laws that are have been passed in India, the citizenship laws there that are making it impossible for Muslims to be citizens. They don't care about any of these things that are consequential, important. Right. They don't meaningful. care about the ongoing surveillance in the United States that still this is true. revealed. Domestic, and then, closer to home. Uh, we we don't seem to ever talk about anymore or acknowledge, and. It's why this moment of woke politics on the left is disorienting for me as someone who spent a lot of the later years of the Bush administration and the entire Obama administration uh, in vang against things that I found uh, genuinely outrageous. Uh, Some of the drone strikes that killed innocents, some of the mass Mm -hmm. surveillance in secret. Uh, huge things. You know, I've written recently critically about Michael Bloomberg spying on students for no other reason that they were Muslim and stop and frisk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you would think these kinds of things would be anathema to a sort of woke social justice focused politics. I certainly uh, think of them as social justice causes. Uh, one of the things that motivated me to write about them. And yet uh, it seems as if a poorly worded Barry Weiss treat, tweet, right, will get more outrage many times. Um, mm. it, it seems like, like, like even the Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris dynamic, where to me, Harris was a terrible district attorney of San Francisco, a terrible AG of California, uh, did a lot of things that criminal justice reformers, this issue that is supposed to be uh, foremost in the minds of progressives, ought to think is horrendous. And... In some way, there seems to be more concern about, well, Pete Buttigieg doesn't seem to attract very much African-American support, and is he really gay enough? Well, neither, these kind of stylistic <laughs> um, these kind of stylistic critiques. I don't know. And I just – I can never make sense of why it is that the kind of woke progressive politics alights on some of the causes or many of the causes that it often seems to alight on while – ignoring things that seem just utterly egregious to me. And I'll give one last example. NBA players were so celebrated for so long for Mm -hmm. speaking up against um, police abuses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think rightfully so. I think it's good. You know, the United States has a lot more uh, police killings uh, than other comparable countries. There's a lot of complicated reasons for that, but some of them are unnecessary. It would be great if we could have reforms that would reduce them. Um, And yet what, bigger profile and cowardice is there than these multi-million dollar athletes, these billionaire athletes in some cases, uh, just r- refusing to say a bad word about China that just came down. What did they come down on another league or, or something? Someone said something Premier, that premier soccer league, right? Yeah. It was a game they took off. Yeah, mm. television. I didn't even catch that. They, yeah. So uh, a player on Arsenal, one of the biggest uh, premier league uh, teams, 
uh, was he's a Muslim. He was critical. It's Turkish, of, yeah. He's critical of the uh, crackdown on the Uyghurs in China, and China responded by pulling a Premier League game from Chinese TV. Yeah, and keeping in mind that this is literally one person on the club. Not, yeah, it's not a, a position that everyone got to together and got down on one knee. Um, what's his name? Ozil is his last name. I can't remember, but he's very he's like a very famous player. So I mean, the good. one player in the NBA was the most outspoken, also a Turk. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm mm-hmm. happy to be the first person to always criticize all Turks everywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that a, is that a thing that you're going to start? It's, Ar- now? it's an Armenian. Well, that's, 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 uh, that's not a good policy. But okay. whatever you know, yeah. we all have our our boutique <laughs> little countries <laughs> that we kind of don't like. Uh, but Anish uh, Kantor, uh, who's uh, who's great, like uh-huh. he's he's been phenomenal on this and and others. He's a good guy. Yeah. Um, I would say to that, for me, there was a moment. Um, yeah, Camille and I, and also Fish, uh, worked on the independence program, which ran from the end of uh, 2013 to the beginning of 2015. Greatest program in the history of cable news. Super, really good. I still can't yeah. believe it got on the air. So program. <laughs> like literally the first week or the first month, Camille's like dropping end bombs on everybody. It was so. I believe it was like an entire segment. Yeah, yeah. no, it yeah. was. It set, it set the record. Kennedy and I are most just like uses oh, of the word nigger oh, in just, a cable news oh broadcast. Oh my god! I still own that record. Just, For some reason, the Guinness Book of World Records is not recognizing my <laughs> yeah. achievement. Yeah. Racism, which yeah. obviously, clearly, when will they stop oppressing? After my intervention, my black body. They're not. But like, <laughs> shame. Our, I'm sorry, Connor. I didn't mean to. Our do that basic year that we ran was in 2014. The only in uninterrupted year and that was the year of Ferguson and a bunch of the stuff came through and so we mm-hmm. ended up writing uh, writing uh, talking a lot about these issues and I think in a really interesting way uh, Camille in particular but uh, but the program uh, did in, in in an interesting way and I think that like changed the way that the, not us but like the the country's conversation about the stuff changed and for a while some of that was was in pretty you know, balcotastic uh, forms. People were talking about the militarization of police. They were, mm-hmm. they were speaking about things in terms that were familiar maybe to the five of us in the room, but not to, to normies. Um, and so there's, there's this energy that's bubbling up and there are organizations that are coming up with it. Um, and some of those organizations uh, are doing, working on some pretty good and interesting criminal justice reform uh, uh, initiatives and there was a moment four years ago uh, between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and I forget the event exactly, um, but it was uh, they were both confronted at a at the same event uh, by activists. Do Black Lives Matter? And Bernie um, said, "Well," uh, and gave like the uh, the sort of social like the Ralph Nader answer of like he wants to talk about class, he doesn't want to talk about race. Um, gets around two things that are on a policy level very copacetic with the critiques that people might have um, on civil libertarian grounds and, and, and even explicitly racial grounds. But he, his overall frame is a class frame and it's not a race frame. Did, didn't he, did he, didn't he say all lives matter? matter. He said all lives matter. He said all lives matter. Which is racist. And Hillary Clinton, whose very long track record in the world has not been good on this issue in a thousand ways, gave that little smirk and said, Black Lives Matter. Standing Girl, ovation. Of course. Ooh, I got hot nuts. sauce in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. Yeah. <laughs> you know it. And like for and and maybe I was over uh, reacting to that moment, but it, it kind of like is that really what mattered in in the scheme of things that your whole career 
you know, it, Bernie Sanders probably plays up a little bit more than one should. But if I had been there, I'd been playing it up too. like the pictures of him in like 1962 in Chicago marching at yeah, civil rights rallies. Yeah. Like he was he, he was there always. Yeah. There's a lot of credit for that. And I, you know, uh, uh, but like it's the momentary like how do you deal with the most el- illusory or fleeting moment of 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 like uh, of of stated uh, uh, whatever that means more than entire you know swaths of policy or, or career in office. There was this there's this tweet I flagged uh, Camille when we were going back mm-hmm. and forth by. Uh, who was it? Um, it's Jamel. Jamel Bowie. Yeah, uh, I was going to I was going to mention this right now, and I wasn't going to say his name, but I'm glad you did. And he um, he basically said, for all of you people who think that uh, there's a woke problem in democratic politics, um, tell me the marginalized groups whose concerns <laughs> that you think Democrats should address less. Uh huh. And because that is the kind of, that is kind, the of critique. A, kind of a trick question, but yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around. And it's like, no, he's, he's good at that. And it's like, no, precisely the claim being made here uh-huh. is that uh, this kind of politics is at its worst and should be critiqued when it isn't actually representing anyone's interests, when it becomes a kind of politics of. Uh, like upper class connected manners and politeness, yeah. like you know, using the right spoon for dessert at a fancy dinner, <laughs> and th- that really is that what is it exactly seems to be right. much yeah. of the time. Yeah. That uh, you have signaled that you are an ally because you know exactly what to say, and, and I mean, it's, it's striking, right, that we have a leftist politics in the United States that thinks that. Uh, people on college campuses should have to go through cultural competency training yes. before they are able to interact with people of different races or genders or ethnic groups. Uh, so, like, what does this say about people that go to college? They cannot be culturally competent to interact with one another? Okay, by the way, it's, cultural competence training is called interacting with people from other <laughs> right. cultures. Then you kind of figure it out pretty quickly. But it's such a um, – <laughs> You, you would think that, white man. You can't appreciate what it's like for other people. Yeah. And so I don't – thinking through – um, the commitments that Bowie has to the equal civil rights of different groups, mm. e- even to a pretty expansive agenda for gay rights, for trans rights. I'm pretty much on board with uh, everything that I can think of. I don't think that there's a substantial substantive disagreement, really. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and yet uh, we, we seem to see this differently. And I just don't believe that the people who complain about wokeness or, you know, the polls that show overwhelming majorities of Americans are against political correctness. I don't think that they're talking about uh, substantive equality uh, or or even decent manners to groups. I don't think that they want to call people racial epithets. I don't think that they want to go around disrespecting people. Uh, I I just think they're tired of a kind of constantly shifting – Standards that no one knows Yet what they policed. are, like yeah. militarization that, of police and that's, and on that's, those standards. Yeah, and that's like the problem that that I have with this stuff is it's the sort of gesture politics of it. Um, and I think I don't know if I did it in the Patreon thing we did the other day, or, or it was the one we did last week, but. I remember ma- mentioning that uh, someone got mad at me for a fake accent that was not from any real country, and I, like that—that that was perfect for me. That actually explained everything. And I said, you know, can like, you can hum a few bars? No, because I, when I'm thinking about it, it will be like, it will be perfect, you know. But uh, and 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 you know, you ask somebody like, well, why are you mad at that? What? And it's like because you're doing the accent. Like, but what accent is it? They're like. I don't know. It's just that you shouldn't do it. Why? I don't, I don't know. It's this, this sort of gesture politics. And the thing about that is where it gets scary is I see people 
you know, who it's much easier to, to Connor's point of like, why do you not care about these large issues? It's much easier to, to go around policing other people to show them that you care and that you're knowledgeable about where we should be as a country and as a society sort of socially. They go around sort of monitoring people's people's speech and pronouns and how you address things. And, you know, I, I would say, as you say about Jamal Bowie, it's like, you know, I appreciate it in some way, but I don't because I don't trust their motives. And I like the, the people that that have the power now because of the fear that and I'm thinking of a couple of examples that I've seen around me is that people make these wild complaints. But like, what? Why is that strange and offensive? And the 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 sanctions come before they're finished offering the complaints. Because of the terror involved in, like, particularly companies, HR departments, et cetera, that they just don't it, – it's best not to – So to, give an example if you – I can't. I mean, but just like a theoretical <laughs> example. If someone uh, a theoretical had example. Done, uh, Well, like, look, if I if – I, If I, I had it, done it. Like, look, if I – what are you, OJ? Yeah. Like, yeah, um, if, if, I, if I did the fake <laughs> accent that was like this, like, you know – kind of ambiguous accent that wasn't actually a real accent and someone was offended by it mm. because somebody actually was offended by that with me recently and I was like what are you talking about and then they backed off because they realized that they were just it was just an instinct it was like a little a little twitch and if that person had not said something to me but instead gone to HR or something like that I would be I would have to answer for that and that would be you can no longer just say you're being a fool do you're we, being silly that's ridiculous I, do Come we on. have an HR at the fifth column. There's no HR. No. Well, I think that there's, I think that there's that a lot of, a lot, yeah. I think there's a lot of unappreciated cost to this politics. Uh, one of it is people are less willing to engage in conversations about uh, fraught issues that could move them in a good direction and lead to greater understanding. Maybe uh, they have a wrongheaded opinion that would be corrected if it were expressed and discussed and hashed over. People are afraid to engage in the conversation at all. Uh, I also think that. When you, it's kind of up for debate at any time. Uh, what it means to respect someone is a matter of cultural norms, right? And if you acculturate a certain swath of people into thinking, I mean, the New York Taxi Cab Commission, right, just put out this guidance to New York City taxi drivers, uh, instructing taxi drivers that a good thing would be when someone gets in your cab, ask what their pronouns are. And Jeez, are you kidding? Which is weird at what level That's because, a real thing? because have they, when have they met cab New York cab yeah. drivers, why are they not respecting the culture of most of these cab drivers who will not be interested in asking people their pronouns? But also, how often do pronouns even come up be, in a cab? Like, I'm, who, I'm offended if you ask me that question. But personally, so your offense loses out to the offense of the person. Well, Clearly, this is not going to happen. New York City taxi drivers are not going to ask people's pronouns when they get in the cab. Never and in some and, sense, and this no is acculturating some small segment anymore. of people to believe that Shut this up, is a man. sign of disrespect. It is not a sign of disrespect. It is uh, an impracticality. It, it would create much more awkwardness uh, and conflict if they did it. But isn't, no it, but isn't it, it but disrespectful to, in some ways, I mean, we can't adjudicate people's you know cultural beliefs who drive cabs and there's a for instance there's a neighborhood where a friend of mine jonah who's a listener to this podcast and and most of the people that are in his neighborhood are bangladeshi and they're he's they're all cab drivers and they you can see the cabs like triple parked while they pray at certain times of the day um we would be asking people who probably are not let's be honest probably not going to be like wait i'm sorry transgender people not on the high on their list. I mean, these people have a culture that is probably not really attuned to 
gender issues and doesn't want to be. And that is something I'm guessing, but I suspect I'm probably right about. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very weird thing. Yeah. It's like, well, you, know, you have it, to respect the culture. I mean, we, I, you get into the sweepstakes of whose culture you actually end up respecting. But how many times is it going to be that uh, a guy who's a little bit insecure about looking a little bit feminine or a woman who's a little bit insecure about looking a little bit masculine and suddenly asks their pronoun and gets offended, yeah. right? You can just... Seen that happen. You can get offense in all different directions. Uh, and does this... Does this change in what politeness is imputed to consist of actually help anyone? I can't imagine that uh, a, a politics of respect for trans people, equal rights for trans people, uh, you know, gender reassignment surgery being covered by healthcare, all of these substantive things that I'm inclined to support. Uh, I, I just can't see something like the New York City taxicab thing to just cite one example of, of many in this realm is actually advancing things in any way except for changing what it is considered to be polite in a kind of never-ending way that's mm -hmm. impossible for anyone to ever actually comply with because it just I keeps think, changing. I think you're right about the the extension of this the wokeness into these other sort of peripheral areas being the place where maybe the worst manifestations or the worst consequences of of this philosophy um, exist. But I also worry about like the particularism. Um, of wokeness. So maybe I am the guy who's a little more critical of the buoys of the world. And even the maybe. concessions, the concessions that right thinking people like the good gentleman in this room. And I think even you, Connor, in this otherwise, I think, fabulous piece that you wrote about Michael Bloomberg, mm -hmm. about all the various ways that he's miserable and terrible and awful and no mm -hmm. good. Um, you said something when you were talking about stop and frisk and you specifically mm -hmm. referred to the racial component of stop and, stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. And from my standpoint, I appreciate that there are a great many people who are deeply concerned about stop and frisk because of the disproportionate impact on the minority residents um, of the city who were being stopped in most cases. Um, but for me, the fundamental issue is a civil liberties issue. And it would be an issue whether or not the people who were – being stopped or white or black or otherwise. And the fact that black people are the ones who are being overstopped. Like it, it actually seems like a, a bit of a distraction from the fundamental issue that we're talking about to nod in the direction of the racial stuff. And, but if you it's, believe and that's that why I worry about the particularness of, of, of sort of wokeness. Uh, no, but this, this is context. a question for you. But if you believe that those civil liberties are being violated because people are motivated by, by racial distrust or but racial a, hatred. But it's an absurd conclusion to reach. I mean, it's also the case that there, if Donald there, Trump believes to the it, extent I mean, what, someone is benefiting that, right? from this policy. Yeah. If Michael Bloomberg is to be believed when he says, well, we're going to we're going to overstop black yeah. people to stop uh, gun violence in the city the principal victims of gun violence in the city are minorities. So this discriminatory policy is being instituted against black people for the benefit of black people because racism. Right. It's, well, an, it it's, remains, a, it's I mean, a ridiculous circular I mean, argument. No, not necessarily. I, I think it I is. Mean, it, it's, but I also it's think totally it's... totally in keeping it, just... Uh, I'm going to separate your problems uh, uh -huh. with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with your vast... Separate uh -huh. your problems. Uh, with a general uh, uh, Bloomberg vibe, which is that... He thinks that poor people should pay more taxes. The whole point of sin taxes is that it changes the poor people's behavior, and that's going to be for their own good, right? Mm -hmm. So this is of a piece. I don't. I won't claim a racial aspect to it, but I'll, but that's why I'm saying that placing the 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 
particular concern for blackness on these issues in these contexts is actually a bit of a distraction that creates more problems than maybe, it solves. Maybe or maybe not, but it's also part of the way that he thinks about it. I am doing I am stopping black people because black people want me to stop them for their own good for their own communities. He has made this explicit in his in his apologia for stop and frisk forever, up until like last week when he decided he was gonna run for president. Now he's modified this somewhat and in a very unconvincing way. Mm-hmm. But that's like part of what he's that's part of his thing. And I think the paternalism of it mm-hmm. is has all kinds of weird and I think nasty and wrong overtones, both on a, um, a position of pure like public policy, but also on the strong dictating what the blinkered weak uh, can or shouldn't do. But, but whether and, or and not that's you- worth and that's worth actually not. Uh, turning your head uh, away from. But what I'm saying is whether or not you codify that with respect to race, you can still call that paternalism and you can still explain the the specific wrong that exists. And the one thing that it's not, even in the way you explained it, is racist. Well, I think I have a different take on this. I think that that's good. I was I was pushing for that. We can imagine that <laughs> Michael Bloomberg and Heather McDonald are earnest when they say that we are trying to save black lives and our policies successfully did that. I, to- right, I right? totally believe them when they say that. And um, that can be true and it doesn't affect my critique of these policies, which is that um, if you're looking at the – if our commitment is that uh, everyone should be treated as individuals in a colorblind way – And these policies are basically saying there are higher crime rates in this racial group. And so we're going to burden even innocent people who do not commit crimes because other people who have the same skin color as them are committing crimes at a disproportionate rate. Uh, I I don't think that that is a legitimate civil liberties compromise. But is it any more legitimate if you just go to the Utica station in Bed-Stuy and you stop every fifth person that comes in? Because the no. outcome is the same. It's, and if they would have been doing that, I I, 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 mean, that's I agree of, with you. That's kind of what they were doing because they didn't have like the stop and frisk wasn't happening like downtown in the financial district like at my stop. It wasn't happening there. It was happening out in Bed-Stuy. It, like, it, <laughs> it also wasn't happening. You know, I when I was in uh, – in grad school at NYU, I would walk up to Harlem and spend a bunch of time at a senior center where I was reporting a long feature mm-hmm. in areas where they did a lot of stop and frisk. Right. And to no one's surprise, I was stopped zero times. Yeah. So I do think that um, me, me too. You know, we can separate the we can separate the uh, motives of Michael Bloomberg right from the motives of all of the individual NYPD cops. And even if only 5% of the NYPD cops had racial animus, and I think that that's probably understating the true number, but even if it was only 5%, uh, over time, with people doing eight-hour shifts, that has a tremendous burden. uh, And it has a tremendous burden on whole communities. It changes the tenor of life in these places. Um, It's also the case, uh, and Michael Bloomberg would never uh, implement, would never say, you know, we've got a lot of white collar crime on Wall Street. Uh, we're going to start taking guys who are going into these tall, glassy office buildings. We're going to throw them against the wall. We're going to open their briefcase. We're going to look at the documents that they have inside. <laughs> and we're going to see if there's anything funny going on here, right? Turn out your suitcases. Uh-huh. Uh, and briefcase. and so I think when – I think if, if there I think were, bodies, it is, if I there think were <laughs> bodies downtown, they might actually it, do that. I, I think it is fair when you have a uh, – when you have a racial group that is being targeted, uh, innocent members are being targeted in a disproportionate way. 
uh, or uh, for that matter, in the kind of Giliovi ghetto side thesis, if you have uh, communities where a racial group is being disproportionately underserved by the police, um, it's worth flagging that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I agree with you and with <laughs> Thomas Chatterton Williams uh, that we ought to be moving toward a colorblind society, that that ought to be the goal. Uh, but but I still think it's worth flagging these disproportionate outcomes when they exist. I think there's sometimes flags when they don't exist too. But but I think mm-hmm. stop at frisk is a pretty clear case where it did exist, even though if it was all white people being stopped, I still would have said you can't do that. That's the Fourth it, Amendment. It, Come is on. there? But is there? And it's an honest question. It's not my my issue. Is there evidence of this in a non-racial way? Or in a racial way or a sort of racially neutral way where people – because, I mean, you're talking about when people are stopping people at Utica um, and – or if Connor's going to Harlem and not being stopped and Camille says, well, I'm not either, there's that kind of cultural – profiling that's going on too, right? Uh-huh. I mean, the difference between, I mean, Danny Glover, very famously, I think in, in the late 90s, did that protest in front of the TLC, in front of the taxi commission, saying black people couldn't get picked up uh, by cabs. And there were very few white cab drivers at the time. And I used to always ask cab drivers about this. And they always said the same thing. And I don't know if they got a talking point to say it, but they were always, you know, darker than anybody that I knew. They were, you know, dark-skinned people that would say that, well, it depends on where I am. I'll go this way and that way. I'll, I'll pick them if they're downtown, if you're right. in front of this, but I won't pick them uptown, right? And whether or not that's 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 true or whether the efficacy of that is like preventing crime against yourself, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter to me. I mean, in for the purposes of this question is that, is there, are there people like in... I don't know. What is the, the version of this? The opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they pick up people who look like juggalos. Right? Is there some? <laughs> is there something that that we know that in like Ohio, where there's people cooking meth and they're just focusing on neighborhoods and stopping people there, and it's disproportionately affecting innocent people there? But there isn't a racial category. Well, so I would say, I would say, I just don't know. Yeah. I'm not making a. By the way, just to be clear, yeah. I'm not making a point. I just don't know if there's actually so York, data about yeah. this in New York City. I I mistrust Bloomberg's motives more than you do because. Um, we know that he was okay with embedding NYPD officers in with Muslim students, targeting them specifically because of their religion uh-huh. and justifying it even after this years-long program generated literally zero terrorism leads. Right. So we have some and, – And I don't I – don't, I, I would not contest yeah. using racial descriptions in that context. I think that's the only way to explain what right. is happening in a circumstance like that or if not racial, at least like religious – for example. So it seems like not beyond the bounds of possibility that someone with the character of Bloomberg might at least have some of the same motivation with regards to race and then religion. It's at least possible. Uh, it wouldn't be inconsistent with this other case. And then we have audio of NYPD precinct captains saying, stop black and brown people. I mean, literally, <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's not to say that that's true of the entire NYPD because mm-hmm. it's a tremendously large force, a t- tremendous diversity of people and motives. Uh, and, uh, you know, it race, is a majority minority force. Yeah. 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 Uh, but there are. Say that again. It's a majority minority force. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, there are clear instances, both uh, people being stopped on the streets and having racial epithets used against them. And also uh, these kind of precinct level, go out and stop this kind, this color of people. Uh, and, and so it, whatever we want to say about the overall policy, there was at least some racist valence to this, I would argue, that's pretty clearly demonstrated. When are the, 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 there's, there's tapes of people saying that? Is that from There's some uh, story that came out uh, over the past 10 days. Um, I think it was hooked to a lawsuit that covered policing from 2014 and 15. Uh-huh. So it was uh, even pre-de Blasio, early de Blasio, 
um, but uh, where you had uh, tapes of of cops talking about specifically like where to and who to uh, enforce, you know, uh, uh, turnstile jumping. Oh, specifically about turnstile jumping. Yeah. I thought that the, yeah. and I could be yeah, wrong. I don't. About this. I don't know anything about what, this. One yeah. of the the cops was quoted as saying uh, he was scolded for quote stopping too many Russian and Chinese. I mean, first of all, <laughs> they you need did to be air stopped. quotes when you did that. By the way, just <laughs> they, so you know, that's, I'm quoting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we're not stopping the Russian and Chinese, what are we even doing? <laughs> it's part of the Russian culture to jump turnstiles. What turnstile? I don't pay this. He's stupid. <laughs> the vodka on the floor. I went right under the door. Oh, just go okay. into the stereotypes. That's fine, Matt. It's disgusting. I, you know, I, I read uh, every time when I read uh, to my daughter. So it's like once every month. Um, it's got a <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I always start like, get in hit. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and then she's like, did they, you not even like read that? to me once a month? Do they like can, we, can I get this lower than the frequency that I have now? She, at this point, she's old enough. She actually uh, uh, physically punches me. I had a, a question, associate, and I don't want to disrupt the conversation, but I know that I'm going to forget it, and let's all just work on my Alzheimer's. You're not disrupting the conversation. Uh, Please go. Connor, you were talking about the tax cab, like, you know, talk about the gender pronouns. Um, two to three of the five people sitting around this very important table work for woke media companies. Huh. You all will have different descriptions of that. Yeah, like on average, I'm like you all have different levels of of it. Your companies, not you, whatever. Um, so my question is, how many of you, free think, you run it? If it's woke, I mean, it'll be woke soon enough. No but comment. like, uh, no comment. Um, He's gonna well, cut this, by the way. Yeah, he totally is. Yeah. Um, how many times have you in your life, in any context, heard people sit you down for the pronoun talk? Like, oh, we should think about your pronouns. You know, it's it's important to do the um, thing with the pronouns. I prefer not to talk about it. <laughs> but um, oh, no. I will say this. Oh, no. This is how one dodges a question. Oh, no. You typically, when you're dodging a question, you don't start by saying, I'm dodging a question. Yeah. Because you want to keep, <laughs> no. it's like the three-card money trick. You want to be like, oh, where the hell did it go? But <laughs> It's late in the show. It's, uh, I, I, I it's will, like the Patreon pitch. I, I, I will say this. There is a very common, Connor used the word, that I think that is uh, one that I often hear about this is, is is just the word polite, right? And it always reminded me when I was in college, the bumper sticker that, that I, I lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a very sort of radical place, Northampton, lovely place. I loved it. I would live there again. But it's a radical place, right? Politically, it's 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 quite left wing. And there was always a bumper sticker on the back of like Volvos that said, feminism is the <laughs> radical idea that, that women are equal. Mm-hmm. Well, not really. <laughs> it's not exactly, you know, that's not exactly what it is when you're reading Judith Butler or you're reading Catherine McKinnon or things like that. There's, there's a lot more to it than that, right? So the bumper sticker stuff is, is, is kind of like, nah. And I often get this in context of, um, so social life and work and the rest of it, uh, which is, um, that you call it wokeness, you call it political correctness. I don't use the phrase political correctness because it's been sullied by by the disgusting um, mouth breather in the White House um, and choose to use whatever word that he doesn't use. Um, but let's just say wokeness. Um, it's something he'll never use. It'd be too confusing to him. Um, that this is just basic politeness. And that's what that's all we're asking for. And, you know, I think that in a work context, I'm not saying in my work or anybody else's work, but the, 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 just in a work context is that if that were true, it wouldn't be always so closely associated with punishment. 
when I'm trying to make people more polite, I'm trying to make my daughter more polite, I don't slap her in the face. I say, by the way, you know, you shouldn't say this or you should say thank you. You should hold the door. You should blah, blah, blah. And there's always this thing of like, we're just trying to instill a sort of new politeness that you might not have heard of otherwise, particularly you older folks. (laughs) And I say, okay, and maybe I'll forget it because I'm just acclimating to this new culture. And if you forget it and you screw it up, oh boy, you want to, you just want to, you want to make sure that you don't screw it up. And that's to me, the thing that I loathe about that idea that this is all just, you know, trying to make people act in a, in a sort of more civilized way. And I think, by the way, it, it also rests on this false premise that prior to all of this stuff in the sort of new vogueish moment for it, that people uh, didn't know this. And of course, there are companies, um, particularly, I think, financial companies. I don't want to be stereotypical, but I think probably Bear Stearns was maybe not the wokest company in the world, particularly as it pertained to women. And, you know, probably, you know, Jordan Belfort strippers at parties and cocaine stuff. But I think generally speaking, one could have achieved all of this stuff without p- punishing well-meaning people. I'll give you an example. I was at... Um, a bar and I was doing that bar crawl shoot and I met a woman and she told me an incredible story. Which one? Uh, Bay Ridge. Yeah. And uh, she wouldn't go on camera. She was great. I really liked her. And she worked at this company and she mistook uh, a young Asian woman for another young Asian woman. And she was sanctioned oh. very brutally. Uh, and she explained to me and she wasn't lying. She was just like this average sort of normal woman. And she was like, Oh my God, this is this crazy story that happened to me recently. And she was like, sort of crying, telling me the story out of bar. Like, just, it literally started crying. And I was like, no, no, no you're fine. You're fine. fine. I'll buy you a drink, whatever. <laughs> but, but then you buy them drinks, and they cry harder. I don't know how that happened. But so like, she's telling me this and I'm like, you should be able to tell that this woman who's like a Bay Ridge woman, like just working class woman. And it was, it was this, it was a company in Midtown and I don't know if it was a financial firm, but she was the lowest person on it. She was a, like an executive assistant. And that's the air quotes that I'm doing. She was a secretary, right? And she made this mistake and she was brutally uh, punished for it. And she said there was, there was the intervention of somebody else was the only reason I didn't get fired. And she said the, the person that I said that to um, didn't actually care. And when they had the Christmas party, she was like, she hugged her and she was like, they were got on great, and rest of it. but it was someone else who was at the social gathering who heard it and reported her in a sort of Stasi-like way. And they have to, of course, respond because if something bad happens later, you don't want that thing on the record that you didn't respond to it, right? It's like over-policing, but in a, in a work uh, context. And I just felt so sorry for this woman because like after talking to her for like a better part of an hour, and I just had a good sense that she was not a bad person. She was just thrown into this world, which all the people who worked there were young. And she was like in her mid sixties and she was making a quarter of what the 28 year olds were making. And she was like, you're going to get fired because you mistook this woman. And she's like, it was dark. It was at this thing. It was a work event. And I didn't know. And I'm really sorry. And she was saying sorry to me. And like that Mickey Rooney impersonation. uh, She did that later, which uh, she's very good at it, by the way. Um, But I was like that kind of stuff I've seen and heard uh, too often in this, in the sense of like, it it, it is true that there are people of a a certain vintage that (laughs) you might want to, you know, say, Hey, I mean, I say this to my parents, like, you know, you say this to relatives and stuff like, come on, man, at like a a Christmas dinner or something. That's normal, right? That's how 
people you, catch you're up trying with, to get them to not say faggot again oh my god you know <laughs> it's it's yeah i mean look i told you in the this is this is giving away this little thing on the the the, the patreon one where i was watching the simpsons with my daughter and bart in this episode is like that's so gay and i was like holy cow that's amazing that this happened on the simpsons and it wasn't the first season it was like 10 seasons in and i was like yeah no that's good that that's not a pejorative that's good that that's not a slur but i'm I, that's where i stop in the sense of like the person who like i talked to someone from massachusetts what is the most common word of a person from massachusetts says after a certain age anthony is shaking his head he went to school in boston <laughs> what it's it's like don't be fucking retarded like really like honestly that's a very common thing and i don't want them to lose their jobs because they walked into this scenario where people are younger and sort of more woke and the times have changed and they didn't recognize the times have changed. And they're not malicious. So the, I guess the point being is that is that the problem I have with all of this stuff is that we've stopped caring about motivation. We've stopped caring about intent. It no longer matters. I mean, that's why you see people from the human rights campaign, the uh, gay rights organization in New York and uh, D.C., getting fired for saying a word in an anti-racism seminar. The guy from Netflix, I believe, said uh, got yeah. fired for the same thing, is that once we start taking all of the intentionality out and the, and, and, and the idea of why these things were said, that's a scary moment, right? I think Because you, you, you can't control. I mean, at that point, you're, you're admonishing people not to say this stuff. And it's like, it's a magic word at that point. You've given it these supernatural powers that if you utter it, even when you're condemning it, we will condemn you and your life will be, be massively disrupted. Yeah, it, because it's, of it. it's interesting because I, I totally agree with, uh, with uh, especially with the first thing that you said, which is I do think in a work context, when you're working interpersonally with people, I'm basically willing to, whether it's pronouns or some other accommodation. Sure. Sure. hundred percent. Treat people as let's, nicely let's and decently. Keep in mind for the listener world can. that Connor works like – Remotely. Sitting in his dolphin <laughs> yeah. shorts, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Venice. Yeah. It's true. He Rolling a huge spliff. He <laughs> I haven't seen any in, in ten years. In, yeah, yeah. Like uh, but uh, but I. Um, By the way, you know, I just wanted to say that you can't say that Boston word anymore. I know you don't know that because you've been in California on the beach, but there's a lot of words you can't say in the office. So when you go to the party, just just tell me. I'll <laughs> give you a list. Um, but no, you know, I in my interactions with the Atlantic, first, I've never had the pronoun conversation in any context. I've had. Um, Kids of friends uh, who are transitioning and parents talking to me about, uh, huh, I wonder how to handle this. I wonder how to be supportive. I wonder what's going to happen. I have worries about how they'll be received at school. Um, how old are these kids? Uh, like 12, 13, 14, oh, uh, around that Cam age. Don't do it, Camille. I just said, oh. And Even that's all. enough. And uh, I'm finished then. And you know, but – it's never pronouns that that those people are worried about. It's yeah. it's yeah. my kid wants to show up at a new school, uh, has always presented uh, as a uh, girl wants to show up presenting as a boy and not tell anyone. Uh, and what's that going to be like? Uh, are they going to be shocked by the roughhousing of boys, for example, uh, when someone jumps on them and gives them a noogie? Uh, these are the kinds of questions that parents had. Are, are they going to be accepted? Are they going to be bullied? Not uh, is someone going to be deferential to their pronouns? Um, hmm. And so in my work life, I've never had uh, anything. And even, you know, visiting the office and being there for years and there are a lot of new people I don't know just because the organization has grown relatively quickly in recent years. Uh, but I don't know of any interpersonal conflict like that. And generally, like at Reason, people are pretty nice uh, and get along 
I'm sorry. Have More or less. Met, have you met Reason? Pretty much. <laughs> Peter, Peter and Catherine seem pretty nice. <laughs> Stop right there. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why I asked is that uh, thinking about the New York uh, Cab uh, Commission and stuff, um, because this came up with my 11-year-old daughter at sure. school, like her fourth or fifth day of middle school at, I think, her first math class. They're like, okay, cool. This is math. We're going to be talking about like pre-algebra. We're going to do um, – let's go around the room. What is the pronoun that you all want to be uh, described as? Um, and like within the first week or two, there was like, hey, this is National Coming Out Week. Um, you can go over here in that corner if you need to come out. Um, and that's – Do you come out in the corner? Is that how they do it at your school? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hallway. I think there was a there was a dedicated area. There's a coming for, out hallway. For coming out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, got a, I, got a corner. I got some coats. <laughs> but what I, I, up there. No, but what I wonder uh, genuinely is like the culture in which the – and I think also in terms of our friend Gustavo Ariano, the great writer for the LA Times. Yeah. Um, he at once had a really funny observation, which is that – and he's like a fourth generation – Illegal immigrant. He's not himself illegal, but all of all of his uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 forebears at some point crossed the border illegally. Uh, but like he's basically a Californian more than anything else. He's uh, very Californian. Super Californian. Yeah, yeah. Hung out. He's a great dude. Uh, super great dude. Um, but like he said, the only people I ever hear use the the word Latinx. Yeah, our, yeah, yeah. Latinx. Yeah, I'm already fucking. Yeah. Yeah. Would, would you expect yeah. me to get Latinx? that right? Seriously. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, like a bad video game. Latinx. Oh, God. That's Puzzle it's, game. It's totally how it's spelled, though, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't, it's, I don't like, know. Yeah. If, you know, I-N-X. Yeah. You're not I, wrong. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, uh, he would never hear that from... The actual like Mexicans who work in the fields. No, They're like, no. what what fucking language no, are you speaking? No. It doesn't make any sense. No, and so I wonder whether this is a uh, a kind of uh, prerogative. This is a commandment. This is a discussion that happens only where <coughs> government like intersects with things, right? Because it's not going to happen naturally in the backseat of a cab in New York. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be like, what's your pronoun? Am I? Well, well, I mean, look at one version of this, a recent version of this. And I, I made a kind of reference to this when, when, when Connor brought up the pronouns and saying to people, you know, who, you know, I, I, like first generation, like, you know, been here for four years. Bangladeshi immigrants are probably going to be baffled by this. Uh, a, a recent example of this is you have these coalitions in the United Kingdom. You know, you have things like Cage Prisoner and all these sort of controversial organizations that have been very much aligned with left wing groups because they were opposed to the war on terror, opposed to Tony Blair's foreign policy. And then all of a sudden we see these things recently, these protests that have hit a lot of schools in places like Bradford and Birmingham and the rest of it uh, about the gay rights agenda, which is set by the government in public schools. And there have been massive protests from Muslim communities. And this is this kind of sort of tension that it's not the exact same thing, but it's a, it's a similar thing is that the, they're often speaking on people are speaking on behalf of minority groups. And the old joke that, you know, Americans, uh, Americans, the type of person who goes to China and says, look at all these minorities is that, you know, there is a billion people there. It's just you, buddy. It's like, they, it is this, it is this thing of it. It's an undifferentiated mass. Everybody's set upon and there's white supremacy and then there's, and then they realize that these are very varied, um, very varied communities, particularly when it comes to you, the policies that they hold dear. I, you know, I, Camille, I, I taped something for you today. I, I didn't send this to you yet. Oh, I was in a cab yeah. this morning and the guy was Jamaican. Yeah. 
and he was fucking hilarious and he was going on and on and on. And I was like, man, all Jamaicans think just like Camille. And so I was taping it. And no, seriously, he was like, he guy was great. And he was like, he was just doing a Camille routine. And, and he was basically doing that thing. He's a narco capital. Well, he was basically doing that, that, that thing that, uh, that, uh, you know, like, I don't know why you guys are so obsessed with white people and black p- people. We're too busy hating Trinidadians. Kind of thing. <laughs> and I was like, you don't get it. And I'm like, yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But it is that, that, that funny thing to your, to your point about Gustavo is that it's always so – there's an ideological kind of umbrella for all this stuff. And it does – it's so disconnected from the people oftentimes – that it's talking about. And even the people that are quote unquote representatives of that group, it doesn't mean anything to me because there's class issues and class differences too. I mean, I knew somebody in DC who told me very frankly, it's a true story that they got into Harvard and she said, well, you know, it, you know, it didn't help. Uh, it, it didn't hurt that I'm Hispanic. I will say that somebody in her family was a Mexican ambassador to somewhere. That's all I'll say. But it's just like, these are different things. And, you know, it's like when we think about, you know, somebody who hires somebody who's Hispanic, where they're from, they're the oppressor. They're holding the whip hand, right? There's somebody in Puerto Rico who's like, you know, white. I mean, they go to people that you know that are Venezuelan who are like, I'm, you know, Latinx or I'm Hispanic. You know, in Venezuela, they're like the white ruling class in and Hugo Chavez in the like sort of mestizo. That's a different thing. That's the, the divide there. So it's, it's, we start from this very, very weird point of how we view people as this kind of either undifferentiated mass of minorities. And within the minorities, we don't see this sort of this why like, look, this is why I always have like sort of generous things to say about Bernie Sanders is that the class analysis is far more compelling to me than, than the sort of uh, identity politics analysis, because I see a lot of people get hired um, that do nothing to sort of change the kind of socioeconomic dynamic in a city, in a town, whatever, because you're hiring the person who's a minority, whose parents are both doctors and went to Harvard, et cetera, but you're never hiring the kid from Brownsville. We, you're never hiring the kid from, from East New York. And we, that just bums me out. We've been going for a minute, so we should probably yeah. we should probably reel this in. I do, since I'm on a path to self-destruction today, want to go a step further because I made a grunt oh, no. earlier. Please don't. Nope. <laughs> French, French goodbye, really? I have to. Um, I made the grunt not because I have any particular issue with trans children or whatever the hell else. I think there is something weird, something weird about further advancing the notion that we ought to be particularly interested in people's gender identities or their sexuality. I think that the world I want to live in is one where people just generally don't give a shit about this and they're not interested in sort of the binary constructs or any of that other garbage. And I think it's a mistake for the pendulum to swing in the other direction, essentially, and for kids to show up at school 11 or 12 or 9 or 6 or whatever and for there to be a coming out day for children. I don't want you to have pride in your sexuality. I also don't want it to be a a matter of shame. And it's the same reason why I'm concerned about the, the, the particularness of wokeness, because I think it's the wrong solution to essentially the, the right sort of problem. For years, for decades, we've thought about these things in the wrong sort of way. And now the corrective is, well, let's talk about them all of the damn time and let's continue to push it in people's face so they can be aware of the uniqueness of my experience and the various ways I'm disadvantaged. Well, what if I'm not? 
I think we have the wrong prescriptions for most of these things. And it's the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm already, my daughter isn't even in public school yet. I'm already outraged that you're asking her about her sexuality. She's not going to stop that shit. It's also worth pointing out to you. People do. And, and you can speak to this for hours. People do get mad at you. And I've seen this happen when you say you're not disadvantaged and that you're not living under the sort of boot heel of some. Well, well, I am because of the egalitarian jihad. They <laughs> oh my me, God. They want me to fly oh, coach. Here they want go. me to be like all the rest all of right. them. Yeah, I right. want to sit in first class. All I right. want to be left alone. I don't want to play full all price. Right. So, so to me, I think that there are, uh, <laughs> I think it's a good thing that, um, you know, a six year old somewhere going to probably, uh, a, a fancy private school, uh, can decide that, uh, he wants to show up in a dress because he likes it aesthetically and not be bullied because of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that maps on to gender identity. Uh, I think it's a lot to ask a six-year-old to make a declaration about that, right? Uh, it's and, also a lot to ask six-year-olds not to bully people. So, yeah, yes. but also true. For, yeah. for any reason. Any reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I did so time. good on that test, yeah. you stupid psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I... Uh, there's this long history of uh, wh- whether it's uh, gay and lesbian kids or uh, more in more rare cases, uh, kids who want to wear uh, the clothes that other people think that they don't belong in uh, of being you know horrifically treated. I think it's a good thing that that's gone away. Uh, I, I do think that the idea of asking every kid to make a definitive statement about this confusing matter that most of them probably have no deep thoughts on – because they have no notion of what it means to be a boy or a girl um, in, in any ex- existential sense, in the kind of laudable quest to make it comfortable for that very rare person who does feel like they're in the wrong body or really has a strong preference for wearing uh, a kind of clothes that doesn't match with their gender stereotype, uh, it's putting every kid in the position of making a declaration that they're just not prepared to make. Uh-huh. And there has to be some... Uh, middle ground where you just try to teach respect and acceptance of the kid who's different in any way uh, w- without uh, making it the norm. I, mean, I so I was in uh, I was in San Jose uh, meeting a friend at a restaurant in one of these big outdoor malls where there's a central bathroom instead of bathrooms in each establishment. And I'm kind of looking around for it, and I come to an elevator, and there's this sign. You know the sign with like it's half pant leg and half skirt leg mm-hmm. and it's, it's that, that sign. sign with a <laughs> you would, Matt Welch. it's that sign with an upper down arrow next to it and I'm like oh there must be a bathroom on huh? the floor above and the floor below so I get in the elevator and I go down a floor <laughs> and no bathroom and I get back <laughs> and I go up a floor in the bathroom and in fact it was saying that everyone is welcome in this elevator which was, never, <laughs> which was never in question, right? That, but is that a thing? Uh, and so it's a kind of I mean, like in Saudi Arabia. You are not welcome in the elevator. So, yeah, it's yeah. an example of Don't, this is women's elevator. This is not a thing in fucking San Jose. But it's an example Jesus. of changing Italian, Italian. It's Italian an example of changing norms, yeah. so that this elevator has declared it's inclusive, right? <laughs> and thereby has rendered every other elevator, I guess, yes, exclusive, right? super like, horrible. But it's yeah, just a ratchet monstrous. that that. Like, uh, yeah, surely uh, you could go too far in a way that doesn't serve the very people you're ostensibly trying to help. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, I mean, the the attempt to correct 
for everything, which is a very hard thing to do, particularly when it's like, you know, it's an admirable goal to like prevent kids from bullying other kids. And I think that that's people have been trying to prevent that for a long time. Melania Trump and, and, any and success if, in the well, state yeah. of Massachusetts. Go on. And, 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 you know, probably turning a blind eye to certain types of bullying, which they shouldn't have turned a blind eye to and, and hope they don't today. But, you know, it's a lot to ask, uh, you know, if you're, uh, like, I don't know how much I, I'll say this. But there's, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, well, a, 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 you know, a, a kid, in, a kid in one of my daughter's classes in the past, no longer there, showed up wearing a suit every day. Oh, four or five years old wearing a suit every day, I mean, for two, three years, <laughs> and like bow tie or like what was the tie? No, different size every okay. time. Sometimes a bow tie, sometimes. A... All right. It looked great to be honest, uh, and and that was just like. The kids were like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I mean, literally like, what? It's like a boy wearing a suit. It's like, that doesn't, just doesn't register. You're a kid. It's like Alex P. Keaton. Yeah, well, generation. It, was, I, yeah, it was like really, really pre-Keaton Keaton. It was crazy. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I guess it was probably a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe less than a year and a half ago. I remember going into a coffee shop uh, with my daughter and the guy behind the counter was... I mean, then already I'm like I don't know, guys. He was visibly male to me, right? So I, I all I have to go on is what I'm seeing, right? I, it's amazing that I even have to defend this, but you know, it's like I just see, it. but was full face of makeup and wearing something that looked a bit like a slip. And my daughter and I, we got coffee. I don't blink, you know. This is just you live in New York. It's, New York. it's just like yeah. yeah. So I get my coffee and I walk out. And I look over my daughter and I realize that she's just like wanting to say something. And I'm like, babe, what's going on? And she's like, what the fuck? She was like, she didn't have any idea. And like, I can't be like, what are you doing? She's like five and doesn't, it doesn't understand. She knows what she sees 99% of the time. And that one didn't compute. And she was like, what the hell is going on? I'm fearful that, you know, in a classroom setting that, that today if it doesn't compute and you ask the wrong question well, about it, even at that age, it's probably Well, you said it's hard to keep anyone from bullying, which is true in every school. Uh, it's even harder to keep the worst kind of sadists from really bullying in the most uh, awful ways when you come down equally hard on people who are just doing their best and make an innocent mistake. Yeah. And right. so if what we're interested in is, uh, you know, fighting back against bigotry that is in some sense – uh, putting people under a terrible burden. Uh, we have to be somewhat targeted, like going after any problem. And it, to me, there's just diminishing marginal returns and everything. And, and if you go after the people who are just trying to do their best and conflate that with people who are being bigoted assholes, uh, you're not, again, you're not helping the people that you're intending to. And remember that everybody's a bully. Always. It's always the case. The kids that you went to high school with and they weren't the cool kids and there was a clique and the same thing in college that that was like the frat boys and the rest of it. Those people all came to New York and, and became bullies of a different type. <laughs> and this is uniformly true. I mean, every, and, and it's like, also like I, I, I have an enormous endless reservoir of sympathy for people who were trans in a time when it was just fucking brutal. And then, you know, but I don't have a ton of sympathy for people like that who then, um, go very, very hard after people online who just are either asking questions or doing research about something or exploring something. And they're just like, okay, it's my turn now. And it's like, no, 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 no. 
you got it in a really bad way, and that's a bad thing, and we all probably agree on that. But now, don't don't turn your cannons onto somebody who's who's fairly innocent. You know, some of those people who have been guests on this podcast. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I think the only Definitely person not. they should turn their cannons on is the host of this podcast, Camille Foster. I'm the uh, host. He's I'll, the host. Is he? <laughs> I don't know. He just says the greetings. He was, like trying, him, he was like trying to steal the ball from me last time around. I don't forget he? it. Wait, which time? He, was, got, he got mad. He thought I was point guarding a little bit too much. Really? He did. Well, you acknowledged me as the point guard, and I said it's hard to point guard when you keep trying to take the ball. Oh, well, yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. He was pissy that one. You don't have the handles. But the thing is, if he's not Let pissy, he fucking cuts you in post. You don't realize that because you don't that's listen true. to it. Yeah. Because you're like, I experienced it. And then Camille's like, ha, ha, ha. And then afterwards, it's like fucking if 45 cut, minutes of Camille. If he cut my <laughs> CD right. franchise. Yeah. I'm coming after him. Yeah, and I have I have mics at the house too, so I just put in like Stevie Wonder <laughs> runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like Matt. Why are you such an asshole? And it's like, yeah, auto tune, Matt. That's it. Um, well, I think we should probably get the hell out of yeah, here. Yeah, we should. It's very hot in here. We've been overindulgent tonight, but we've taken full advantage of having you in the room, Connor. Thank you, Connor. thank you, Connor. Sure, great to be here. Company and your hospitality. It all. I, I should say again, and I've said it a few times on this podcast. The good ones always bring booze. They yeah. bring booze. They care. From they Venezuela. understand the product. They, they break do sanctions. their homework. Yeah. They're prepared. Connor, thank you for being outstanding. My only complaint about Connor, he's too smart. Too he makes wrong. me look. He, he makes us all look a little dumb. So not me. Thank, me, not me. What? No, you guys are fucking morons. Yeah, yeah not thank me. You. All right, bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column.